Charlie. Charlie. How about you and I go for a walk? is over but we have to go back down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on post show recaps hello everybody i'm josh wiggler joining me for a walk with john Locke is mike bloom uh mike be careful of screaming pigs okay i'll, I'll try to though i have been heard that i make for very nice bait so yes i was going to I say have to, uh, i have to fill, fulfill my purpose josh john Locke would want it that way he would and i apologize for saying pig instead of boars to, wait, to be fair, I don't think we know if it's a pig or a boar. I am certainly no biologist, so I have no idea of what species of the pig community this might be. So we might need to do some fact-checking on that. Take a, a bit of a trip to the library, as it were. I feel like John Locke catching the boar in this episode is another great argument, as if we need any, that he really would kill it against the Predator. Like, this was like a classic, like, Schwarzenegger versus the Predator move, the way that he catches the pig in this episode. And he mercilessly just strings it up and skins it, and just, you know, I think that we saw, um, for any argument of, oh, they just killed the boar and threw it in front of John Locke, he's not that badass, maybe he took it out on the pig because he was making up for that fact, you know, compensating for something. But he uh, he saw into the island, the island. He also saw into the eye of that poor little piggy. And what he saw was nothing. He had a complete straight face to all that stuff he did in this episode. So badass. All right. We are talking about the moth, not the uh, not the comedy speech competition thingy that Mike was referring to last week. We are talking about the moth, the Charlie Pace flashback episode of Lost here on Down the Hatch, which is a spoiler filled rewatch podcast of every single episode of Lost. And that is the spoiler warning. If you have not seen Lost all the way through, you are unsafe here. So turn off the podcast. Uh, We're going to be talking about Charlie in closer detail today, a character we've talked about a good amount already so far. But this is the the Dominic Monaghan Showcase Hour, Mike. Uh, and it is, uh, it is a, a spectacular episode of television that is definitely not going to be in last place on our rankings up through this point. Oh, boy. Well, and by that logic, that truly cannot happen. Uh, yeah, this is a really interesting episode because... This is the first time where, you know, I think a lot of the flashbacks have surprised us in a good way in terms of finding out about these people's history. Charlie, we we sort of already knew coming into this episode about his drug addiction. And so summarily through the flashbacks, there isn't a lot of big surprises, I guess. No big rug pulls or gotchas on the level of uh, on the level of walkabout or even something like House of the Rising Sun in terms of what Charlie has been up to and how Drive Shaft functioned back in its uh, salad days. But that being said, there's still a lot of stuff to get into that is slowly but surely piling up on us like a big old heap of rocks. You know, I think what's interesting about this episode is a lot of the flashback episodes 
so far, or at least, yeah, I would say I would say Walkabout, White Rabbit, and House of the Rising Sun all have this in common, that it kind of leans on a reveal. Tabula Rasa, Tabula Rasa, and The Moth are kind of similar in that they're less about a reveal and more about providing further context for something we already know. Uh, you know, in, in Walkabout, it's John Locke was paralyzed before he came to the island, and now, miraculously, that is no longer something that he is dealing with. He's now able to walk, uh, and there's a mystery that's introduced through that with sun it's the reveal that she can speak english she's learned how to speak english uh with jack it's the reveal that his father is dead that he is chasing maybe his ghost is on the island but the body may not be here and what's going on with that so there's all these different questions that are posed by the flashback material and i think with what's interesting about the moth is it's one of the early instances of It's less about like the flashback revealing some sort of game-changing detail about its flashback subject and more about how um, Charlie is is changing on the island, how he's like changing in his present Mm. life. Um, You know, we're getting clarity on the fact that he had... um, No, Claire's not in this episode. (laughs) <laughs> no, we're getting, you know, we're getting we're getting information about the fact that, like, you know, what what caused his uh, his substance abuse dependency, what led him to heroin. Um, we, we finally get to know a little bit more about Drive Shaft, but that's not a mystery. He was telling everybody who would listen to him that he was part of Drive Shaft. Um, but on the island, those things that held him back in his life before he, like the moth, is bursting forward into a new state of existence. Um, so we're seeing like active change on the island. I actually think in, in that way, it's similar to Walkabout, but Walkabout also had a mystery element to, right. to play with. Um, so just from a, from a format standpoint, um, kind of an interesting episode. But I think that there's some wonkiness in the episode as well that'll probably hold it back for you and I as far as being of the same level of quality as some of the episodes that we've talked about already. Uh, I will say what I've said before uh, in both in this podcast and in many other places that even like the worst episode of Lost is better than no episode of Lost. And I don't think The Moth is the worst episode of Lost by any stretch of the imagination. I think that there's a lot of really good stuff to talk about here. And I think that we're going to have a really fun podcast. Well, just so we can introduce it and also to uh, make a nice little plug for your material, Josh Wiggler, who recently came up with, in honor of Lost 15th anniversary, a re-ranking of your favorite of all the lost episodes do you remember where the moth ultimately ended up in this you know very temporary ranking of the episodes before we get into our very own by the end of all this Yes. So as I had mentioned a a few weeks ago that I was actually in the process of re-ranking the episodes of Lost, which is an exercise I have done in the past. I had uh, most recently I had done, uh, well, we had done the Lost Lives episode ranking draft uh, in podcast form once upon a time, uh, but for MTV.com in 2014, in honor of the 10-year anniversary of the Lost series premiere, I did a full ranking of all the episodes of Lost. And now in honor of the 15-year anniversary of the series premiere, premiere of Lost, which was on September 22nd. Uh, We'll talk a little more about that later in this episode. Uh, I did it again, and I did it this time for The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, And in this ranking of uh, the Lost episodes, I placed it at 73. Um, I combine all of like the multi-parters, so multiple part uh, premieres, which I believe is just Pilot and LAX, uh, as well as the finales. I consolidate them as uh, single episodes. So with that logic, there's 111 uh, installments of Lost to be considering here. So 73 of 111, 
it's, you know, it's not top half, but it's like high low. Uh, and I feel like that that is a that's a fair placement for the moth. And I think if the moth is in high low territory, that's a real sign of just how great this show is and how strong Lost ultimately is. You're going to have to stop saying hi about this episode because John Lost <laughs> going to come and like castigate you. I know. I really got to be careful with that. No, I, I think for me also uh, going back and watching the moth um, is a is a relatively like powerful personal experience i'm pretty open about the fact that i'm somebody who deals with anxiety i'm somebody who deals with um, a certain level of depression i'm a little less open about the fact that i'm somebody who who wrestles with substance abuse um and i I myself am am currently in the midst of uh of a drinking sabbatical november 27th is going to be my one year anniversary of no drinking who knows if that's going to be the the end of of an era or the continuation of something um but i i've dealt with with my with my own demons in in this regard uh and and watching charlie go through some of this stuff especially while it's it's kind of fresh for me uh and like every day uh i wouldn't say is like a temptation to i have to go back to to whatever it is that i'm that i'm leaning on to get out of my own body and out of my own head which is a, a huge reason why um i've leaned on on drinking in the past and and some other things um but it's 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 been interesting in i'm i'm in a place in my life right now where i'm looking into the eye of that stuff in a more honest and uh and real way than i have before uh and so to examine charlie through this lens i don't think that i've really ever encountered the character with this level of like personal sobriety and clarity. Uh, and, and so a- as we've been talking about the fact that uh, Lost is sort of this amorphous thing where every time you encounter it, you feel differently about it, depending on where you are in your life. Much like, uh, Mike, you're, you're looking at you know, some of the, the, the parental issues and the, the dynamics between fathers and sons differently in light of the fact that you're watching Lost for the first time being a father of a young kid who you are going to be giving that cowboy so many dads issues uh <laughs> undoubtedly over the course of his and life and lots of shoes too and shoe cowboy shoes as well uh that i'm finding myself looking at charlie in in a different light it doesn't mean that i think that this is a blockbuster episode <laughs> uh like it doesn't impact like my, my view of the episode necessarily but there are things here that are that are really more resonant for me uh than there than there otherwise would be like the idea of um uh, it, it's here, so I have to have it. Right. Uh, it's it, it's running out, and I know that this is going to be a problem, but I'm still going to go with it anyway, and and think about the consequences later, and then having to to fess up to those consequences in the moment, and being brave enough to to you know throw the bag of heroin in the fire or whatever the case may be, which is a different episode, uh, and having you know the the guts to do something like that. Uh, so it's been it, it was actually really powerful to go back and and watch this episode. Is a uh, it, it was a different experience for me this time around oh i can totally imagine the fact is i i feel like while you know your situation and charlie's situation might be a bit apples and oranges at the same time it's all fruit and i think that there are not to project too much but i'm sure there were certain things that you saw when charlie is at the end of his rope flop sweating that are probably things that you've thought upon as well the you know i need this Uh, i don't like how i feel without this and the idea of addiction is something that's so interestingly tied into lost i mean you know we have jack later talking about charlie to charlie about addiction he he sort of has his own demons to battle with in terms of alcoholism something that i would love to track and something that i am in no capacity to speak about in terms of knowledge but the standpoint 
that this episode takes about addiction is I feel like in terms of psychology discourse, there's been a big debate as to whether or not addiction is a choice or a disease. If it's something right. we do on our own volition behaviorally, or if it's something that's inherent within certain brain chemistries that occur within certain people. And this episode takes the standpoint that it's a choice. We hear the choice so many times over the course of this episode, specifically from Locke basically being like, hey, you have to make the choice to throw this thing into the fire and summarily get everybody high from those fumes, baby. But I right. think that, you know, it's an interesting standpoint to take. And I, I do wonder if there's been, you know, uh, discussions in the years since, in the 15 years since, that have uh, maybe disproven that point. But uh, it's something, it's a point that I'd never necessarily thought about before. And I guess, you know, growing more adult and coming to terms more, like you said, with your behavioral patterns and how that might tie into the ideas of addiction. It's its an interesting concept to look at. I'm sure it's something we're going to talk about a lot, certainly in this episode. And uh, I'm sure it's something we'll track throughout the podcast. But I, I thought it would be worth sharing that this is where I'm coming from coming into this episode. Because uh, it really... Just to be like... you know, I, I want to be very honest on this podcast and tell you what Lost means to me as I'm going through it, going down the hatch this time around. And it was really powerful to, to re-experience. So uh, it's a, it's, for me, it's a, it's a pretty important part of the discourse with the moth. So we'll get into that. And we'll, we'll, we'll start getting into it in a moment. But to get from the, uh, that personally revealing uh, fact about myself to telling you uh, some facts about friends of our podcast, which would be our friends over at True Car, who we Ooh, want to shout out. So smooth. Yeah, right? So smooth. Our friends over at True Car who are making this week's episode of Down the Hatch possible. Mike Bloom, every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper from when you nervously picked up a first date, the luxury package you got after a big promotion, or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to True Car. Simply enter your license plate number, which we all, if all, if we all had license plate numbers around our necks, Mike, we would all be much easier to find. Yeah, no triangulation needed. None. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions. Navigation and moonroof. Watch as they bump up your value. High mileage. You already knew it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you're finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer is not available in all areas. I assume I that includes the island. I just realized that the perfect segue would have been going from drive shaft to something you drive. Yes. Oh, my God. Well, maybe we'll get another chance uh, later on in this very podcast. Back pocket that, Mike, because that's good material. Sounds good. Uh, with all of that said, Mike, we go forth into the jungle to discuss The Moth, once again, directed by prolific Lost director and producer Jack Bender. It is written by Jennifer Johnson, who is the co-writer of Whatever the Case May Be with Damon Lindelof, which uh, is uh, my... My second to the bottom ranked episode of All of Lost on those aforementioned Hollywood Reporter rankings. So we will be there in a few weeks. Uh, Paul Dini is the co-writer of this episode as well. Uh, sole credit on Lost, but Paul Dini is a very prolific writer. Uh, a really remarkable work uh, in comics and, and several other media uh, as well. Uh, Batman the Animated Series, if you are a fan of that, you got Paul Dini to thank for so much of that. Um, this episode originally aired November 3rd. 
3rd, 2004. And of course, it centers on Charlie Pace, uh, who I can tell you a little bit about from the perspective of the series Bible that we've been referencing oh, Lord. so many times. Uh, let's let's see what's in capital letters this time. <laughs> yeah, let's see what's, what super text awaits us here. Yes. All right. So this is from the series Bible about Charlie Pace. A caring soul wrapped inside a self-deprecating yet wildly amusing wit. Charlie is an addict on a collision course with mandatory rehab. Oh, my God. That's the only capital word. <laughs> but that's still one more capital it's word. Than word. That's, why is rehab in there? It's it should a be big, it's a big addict. Word. Why it's is, a big word. Why did they choose to emphasize that word? Oh, my gosh. It's a big word. Uh, completely unable to accept the fact that he is a has-been, Charlie continues to live in the shadow of Driveshaft. More than a band, but a surrogate family, albeit a dysfunctional one. The last year has been particularly hard on him as the band unraveled due to the ridiculous behavior and raging egos of its singer and lead guitarist, a feud Charlie found himself constantly trying to defuse. But now the dream is over. Trapped on the island, Charlie faces not only the specter of violent drug withdrawal, but also the possibility of resuming his role as the consummate sideman, maybe someday becoming a trusted aide to Jack and finding in the castaways the family he once thought he had found in his band. Uh, what do you think about all of that, Mike? How does that track with what we ultimately know of Charlie Pace? Well, the band is a surrogate family in the real show. It's a literal family in the form of Liam, <laughs> right. which we will get into. Uh, but I think that obviously the biggest discrepancy here is Charlie trying to play a moderator between the feuding lead guitarist and singer. I guess they tried to compare him to like the Derek Smalls from uh, from Spinal Tap instead but now it's that he is the one who is in the feud i guess they sort of merged the characters of the singer and the lead guitarist into liam because we will certainly talk about the very ubiquitous other members of drive shaft that sort of come and go over the course of the years so i mean this concept of family is not necessarily a thing that's inherent to charlie's character at least initially I, just because i think the idea of addiction is so front and center with his character a lot of the time in the three seasons that we see him so I guess if you look at his character from the perspective of wanting to find a family when his family has screwed him over so many times in the past, it's another very interesting look at him. Yeah. Uh, John Krauss, we're, we're bringing uh, one of the others into this section oh, here. Oh, it's, it's the it, old Ethan Rom tactic. Yeah, so we're taking an Ethan Rom and we're plugging it here into this part just because I think it's, it's, it's helpful to talk about this now as we're looking at Charlie overall. And of course, again, we're talking about Lost from a full spoiler view of the whole show. Uh, John Krauss notes that Charlie's character is largely based on Larry Underwood, who is one of the main characters of Stephen King's the Stand. Mike, I'm not sure if you're a fan of The Stand. Do you stand The Stand? No, I'm more of a fan of The Sit. Uh, can't say <laughs> I'm one to be very mobile. So, And I guess I confuse it also with your favorite show, The Strand, as well. Right. The Strain, I think, is what you're oh, thinking of. What am I, what's, the, what's The Strand? <laughs> Strigoi gets uh, full capital letters. Uh, the Strand is a man named Victor who's on Fear the Walking Dead, which uh, is not and there's a show that I like. There's also much. The Strand, which is the famous bookstore in New York. Indeed, indeed. Uh, well, I don't want to spoil the stand for you, Mike, if you feel like you're ever going to encounter it. And I don't want to spoil the stand for people.
people who are listening to a Lost podcast and did not sign off on uh, getting spoiled about a very old Stephen King book that is going to fuel uh, a new TV show coming to CBS All Access at some point in the next year or two, I believe. Um, but the fact that Charlie is based on on Larry Underwood, uh, which is a, a really prominent character from the stand really does track with with the arc of Charlie. There's there's a lot that's going on with the Larry Underwood character in that book about a man who is is you know washed up rocker dealing with his own issues, uh, who is really forced to like kind of rise to the occasion of apocalyptic events uh, and become much more heroic than he ever thought that he was capable of. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that's really awesome about the Moth specifically um, is how. This episode really does encapsulate Charlie Pace in, I think, a really full way. Uh, When you think about where Charlie is ultimately going to go, that he's going to sacrifice his life to save everybody. Uh, At least in his mind, that's what he's doing, right? That he believes that if he dies, then certain visions come true and everybody gets saved. We can debate the merit of whether or not that actually worked out so well at a later point in time. I think we don't want to waste all of our podcast material here. Um, But in this episode, Charlie is going to, he's going to tell people like, I don't have anyone here. You have a you have a wife here. You have a son here. Uh, I've got nobody. I'm I've got nothing. Let me do this. Uh, and he's going to go in and risk life and limb to save Jack from the cave. And he's going to put himself on the line, knowing full well that he could die in the process. And is that not? ultimately exactly where we go with charlie in the end of the story yeah it's really interesting how that really does come full circle in a manner of speaking that he sort of has always had this self-sacrificial nature about him and maybe it's because he does come from this band environment where he has this sort of one for all you know mentality even though again it sort of becomes undone and he he spirals due to the unfortunate natures of said members of that band but i do wonder if you know, even in season two, when Charlie's at his lowest, he feels like he's protecting Aaron and he's protecting Claire. I wonder if there is something on this nature of him wanting to protect people. And maybe it comes from the fact that he has not been protected himself. You know, Liam yeah. makes all these promises to him about the fact that I'm going to protect you. I'm going to look out for you only to be disproven time and time again. Something that I really noticed this episode is that Charlie projects Liam on basically everybody on the island to the point where he is like literally echoing things that were either told to him or things he says in his flashbacks to other people. This is clearly something he has sat with uh, as we open here in a very rent-like opening uh, of Charlie strumming his guitar. That's all I could think of between like the striped shirt, you know, the addiction. It really did feel like Dominic Monaghan slash Charlie, if he ever made it back to, uh, you know, the the UK, he could have been in like the West End production of Rent after like 10 <laughs> years in. Yeah, I mean, if he was able to come back from like the, you know, surviving the plane crash and he's able to have like the the huge booming career uh, that he wants. I think Charlie goes on to be quite uh, the worldwide famous person. I think that would be a fun exercise when we get to uh, to season four and we start talking about people who make it off the island, what their lives could have been like if they were part of the Oceanic Six. Uh, it's fun to think about what does Charlie look like? We know from Naomi uh, in the season three penultimate, she says, oh, you're the rock star. Uh, everyone's bought your album. Like every like drive shaft has had a huge resurgence. You're 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 bloody famous. Uh, that like what would it would what would it have looked like if if Charlie had been able to to tap back into that world? I think would have been uh, really really fun. Um, let's talk about the episode. We're gonna do episode summary as we do here. We will fill it with the eight 
sounds. And as Mike mentions, and as you heard at the top of this podcast, we begin with Charlie is playing guitar in the caves. It's going poorly. He's tap, tap, tapping away. He's having the withdrawal issues already because he and Locke have had their meeting of the minds where he exchanged the heroin in favor of his guitar. Uh, Locke comes up to Charlie and knows that Charlie is not doing well. He needs to go for a walk. The fresh air will do you good. Yeah, I mean, he is also sitting in the caves for a while, and that's, you know, a very literal representation of he's going to make the uh, religious illusions, but also the fact that he's probably getting increasingly claustrophobic and exposing himself to a lot of stale air. He also sort of takes on this very teenagery, moody composition in the first half of the episode. This really did feel like, uh, I know that I've basically made John Locke everybody's father at this point, but this is another thing where, you know... <laughs> That's one of the, the untapped twists of Lost is that Locke just sired everybody. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like he's, Some sort of time travel paternal problem. He is, yeah. the, he is, I mean, I know there is a Jacob, but he is the biblical Jacob in terms of just having so many children here. Uh, but yeah. basically, you know, Locke's like, oh, let's go for a walk, buddy. And Charlie's like, I want to stay in. Like, I'm good. And he's like, no, no, buddy. Let's, uh, you know, put down the Game Boy and the Playboy and let's uh, take a walk here. Yeah. All right. So he's going to go for the walk. We're going to go to the beach where Jack, uh, having uh, moved to the caves, he's already back at the beach uh, and he's back in his like his makeshift infirmary. And he has uh, the, the fugitive picture of Kate and he's just staring at it. And Kate comes in and is like, hey, so uh, you want that for your you want you want to take a, a, a picture of me back to the caves? I, I take better pictures than that one. Uh, she's just smaller, too, if you want for want one for your for your wallet. Uh, and it's another awkward moment where, like, she's like, "You are you like just like, are, are you trying to take a pass at me?" And Jack's like, "Trust me, if you want, if I wanted to take a pass at you, you'd know it." Is he still wearing the lumberjack shirt? As yes, well? yes, yes, yes. As Joe Garfine coined, we have to go hack uh, <laughs> Jack Jack Shepard in the lumberjack shirt. Take it off, man. Bad look. Yeah, somebody get those bees in there so we can take that thing off. Oh, my God. Uh, but they get into a debate again, and Kate's like, why are you mad at me? I just don't want to go to the caves. It's too early to admit defeat. And Jack's like, I just don't get it. Why don't you want to come with me? Uh, and I should note at this point that I am currently recording uh, from Kevin Mahadeo's apartment in Los Angeles, so my wife is not in the next room to yell at she's me about still my gonna, terrible Matthew She's still going to text you. She's looking at the time right now. What's the time in L.A.? And she's getting ready yeah. to you know time everything out. I mean, this is also really interesting... It's an interesting episode for Jack because I feel like this first scene really starts to set him up, at least for the first few episodes, as sort of the, unfortunately, the series pessimist, especially when it comes to this idea of faith. You know, he's the one, like you said, is going through saying, well, you know, I, I really don't think that a plane's going to come. You know, you got the signal. We all know what's going to happen. We're not going to get rescued. And he even says, I wish I shared your faith, which considering his role at the moment as the man of science, it's very clearly underlined right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sawyer is going to take advantage of the situation with Jack leaving the beach and vacating the infirmary. That means Sawyer's got his own new studio apartment uh, on the beach. Uh, why would, like why would you want to do that? Like that would be like moving to an apartment. It's like, oh, just so you know, a guy died in here like a week ago. And you're like, perfect. Let me drop my bags and move in my books. Yeah, Sawyer fully unbothered by the ghost of the man that he botched uh, in an attempt to kill. Uh, so he's just happy to move in. He's got the beachfront property. 
and Jack really doesn't want to stick around to see this. I think that Jack, uh, pretty annoyed by the whole thing. Uh, it, it's already bad enough that Kate doesn't want to move into the caves with him, uh, but the fact that Sawyer is going to be here to literally wave him off. Jack cannot get out if you're faster. Yeah, Sawyer as a squatter is never a great thing when you're walking out as a tenant of your place. Though, to be fair, uh, yeah, I think he also realizes that Kate is not too happy either about the situation, considering that Sawyer is still just tr- thinking he is such a Casanova when really he is not. While Jack might be assuming things, Sawyer is assuming things as well, but he's assuming that all the sleazy tactics that he uses out in the real world are actually working here on the island. All right, so back in the jungle towards the caves, Charlie is going for a walk, trying to find Locke, and there comes the boar. Uh, The boar is roaring from the jungle, and it starts chasing Charlie, and as it's chasing Charlie, we get our first flashback of the episode, and that will take us to our first sound of the episode, which I am very happy to relitigate here on the podcast. Mike, let's roll it. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been a week since my last confession. Go ahead, my son. Last night I had physical relations with a girl I didn't even know. I see. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, right after that I had relations with another girl. Then straight after that I I watched while they had relations with each other I really just wanted to play that because uh, there's there's a lot of different shades to Dominic Monaghan in this episode. And I think a lot of the sounds that we're pulling from the moth are are meant to illustrate that. Uh, it just cannot be forgotten that Dominic Monaghan is hysterical. Yes. He is, he, is, he is very, very funny. Charlie's written in a way that often is very comedic, but it's more often than not. Uh, really all dependent on the fact that Dominic Monaghan just like sells the moments of comedy so, so well. The way that he just like sort of is just like gulping out the word relations is monstrously hilarious all these years later. And you got to imagine the FCC is like, oh, why aren't our, all shows like this? Write the show like you're in a confessional booth. This is what we want. I know. Uh, I also love how uh, the the priest that he's confessing to uh, when when Charlie says uh, his fir- when he confesses his first sin. Yeah, he's he goes, like I had relations with someone last night that I didn't even know, and the father without like missing a beat's like, oh okay, and, well what else? Yeah, he's, he's like, oh, that's a little <laughs> presumptive, father, to be like, oh yes, and you sound very sinful, so I know there's more things in that sack for you to pull out, pun unintended. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> also, uh, yeah. did, did you notice that, because we're going to talk about you know him getting out of the confessional booth, there is, ironically enough, a statue of the Virgin Mary in the foreground while all this is going on, which is a nice little Easter egg as to what's going to become, I would say, the bane of, of Charlie's existence for season two. Yeah, 100%. And uh, yeah, I, I think the fact that it's here, it makes sense that it's going to be here in the context of a church. And then I think as they're further sketching out where they're going to go later in the season, I think that it's pretty clear at a certain point where they're like, oh, well, what if we have a bunch of Virgin Mary statues that are secretly housing a whole ton of heroin so we can re-tempt Charlie? Like, I think it's another example of, um, you know, them looking back into their own past and being like, what can we what, what can we pull into the future 
of the show. But as you mentioned, Mike, Charlie's going to leave confession after he's telling the father that his band, Drive Shaft, we're, we're generating a lot of heat. We're playing the clubs in Manchester. It's really tempting. There's a lot of temptations with the girls, with the blah, blah, blah. The father says, we all have temptations, but giving into them is your choice. Uh, and you you mapped this out earlier in the podcast. I do think it's an interesting conversation that's being had here uh, is something like what Charlie is going to find himself pulled into uh, becoming a heroin addict. Is it as simple as this is your choice? You can choose whether or not to get into this. You can choose whether or not to get out of it. Um, I think that these questions of faith versus uh, science, uh, these questions of um, you know destiny versus can you make your own way forward? Can you make your own luck? as Hurley's father would tell him in the sixth best episode of all time, Trisha Tanaka is dead, uh, according to my <laughs> according to my lost According to ranking. your op- ranking. Yeah. I think I think that the you know, I think that the father here is certainly articulating where he comes down on this side of the line. And I think that over the course of Lost, it's going gonna, it's gonna to present many different cases. Uh, but in any event, um, Charlie's going to be contending with that for the first time here in this confession, and then he's going to leave. And Liam is here. We get our first sighting of Liam, his, his, his big bro uh, who wants to be a rock god, and he wants Charlie to be a rock god as well because Driveshaft has just been signed and it seems like this is right after charlie has decided like i don't want to do this really like this isn't something that i want to do so this isn't exactly news that is lighting up charlie's life at this moment in time yeah i mean he's gonna say several times and it's a bit of a corny line but i feel like it's a good like i am or i want statement of charlie is just about the music he feels like one of the reasons why he goes into father anything else's booth is that he feels like he has almost become distracted and blinded by all of the fringe benefits that come with being a rock star to actually creating material where he's able to pour out his heart and soul. And we'll talk about uh, him pouring out his heart and soul in certain songs coming up. Uh, we, yeah, we're, we're going to have to get into Liam. This might be a new Randy Nations for me. This, <laughs> Liam is Liam is lame-um. Like, yeah. I, I mean, he's just he's the worst. Even after he cleans up, he's a terrible person. And I am I, I could, my heart consistently sinks every time I see this story, knowing how much havoc he wreaks on Charlie's lives and lead, basically drags him down into the caves with him and then says, oh, here's a moth. I'm going to pull myself up. Okay, Charlie, you're going to get out on your own. Okay, bye, buddy. And though I have to, I guess I have to, I wouldn't say commend Liam here, but Josh, we have to stop down for a moment. Let's talk about the music slut t-shirt, shall we? Yeah, so what's going on here? Curious fashion choice from, really, from a lot of people in this episode. But this is a curious fashion choice number one. Talk us through it. So, correct me if I'm wrong here. So, it's the words, it's just a simple black, I think it's, I don't think the sleeves are there, so I think it's like he's already pre-island Liam at this point. He was prepping to go out there almost. Uh, The sleeves are cut off, and it's a simple black t-shirt with the words, music slut, printed on them and i was trying to figure out the s's are they treble clefs are they dollar signs i can't remember for the life of me uh yeah i don't remember either but it's terrible <laughs> it's, it's i i think we're i i don't know bad. josh i think you found i know you have the wombat hats down on lock but i think you found something to give all your runners up for the wand offs coming up oh my god well we could talk about that uh we could talk about that at a later date or we should uh um, maybe we could do some other merchandising uh for this podcast called you know maybe put lost slut down no, so that makes I it stum- that makes it sound like like you're a, a whore and you're missing like yeah i don't think i'm it's a lost good. slut please someone help me find my brothel 
Yeah, I don't think it's good. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to sell. Uh, I think it'll sell worse yeah, than uh, than Drive Shaft for sure. No, I think it'll sell well. I just think it might not sell for the reasons that we think it'll sell. <laughs> right? True. 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 All right. So this is you know this will be a to be continued where we're going to see more of Charlie and Liam's uh, interaction in a moment. But first, we go back to the island and Charlie's still being chased by the boar, uh, and he is going to to run to a certain point, and the boar is going to get snared in a net. Caught in a net. The first catching in a net of lost, not the last. Talk about relations. Uh, Yes, relations to the boar. uh, And John Locke is going to be the man who was responsible for capturing the boar. uh, And let's listen in on what John Locke tells Charlie about this whole exercise. And let's hear Charlie's response to Locke's plan as well. Because I think once again, we are highlighting the acting talents of Dominic Monaghan. And this is a, a personal favorite moment of mine from the episode. And please don't say hi. Nice work, Charlie. You make excellent bait. I'm glad I could oblige. Now give me my bloody drugs. Charlie, these drugs are real bloody because they're covered in pig blood at this point. Covered in pig gore. Yeah, boar gore. Uh... (laughs) Yeah, I I just love this moment because like to my to my memory and you may be the person to to clarify or perhaps even Angela Bloom would be better suited for this. But as I as I go through my mental Rolodex of what happened in Lord of the Rings, I don't think Mary ever has a moment where he is super tempted by the ring. Uh but the way that Dominic Monaghan plays this moment really like makes you feel like there was like a missed opportunity for him to not be Frodo Baggins because the way he talks about his bloody drugs is so freaking Frodo. Mm. Yeah, I mean, listen, he's off playing with Ents for like two thirds of the of the trilogy. So unfortunately, he's not tempted that much. And by that time, that ring is far in Mordor at that point. He didn't make the choice. It was thrown into the fire for him, basically. But it's a good point. And actually, it's a little, I mean, it's a little Frodo, but it's almost a little Smeagol at points. Uh, just sort of his obsession with it, you know, his personality almost changes when he's in front of Locke because of said drugs. It's also really interesting to see, like, the tactics that Charlie tries out here. Like, here, he's very forceful. And maybe it's because, you know, he's just been chased upon and nearly gored like Michael did several episodes ago by this thing that Locke purposely made him run into a net to catch. Whereas later on, he's going to be like, Oh, Jack's, you know, under a bunch of rocks in a cave. By the way, can I have drugs? You know, it's interesting to see. Again, this goes back to addiction. I guess the various tactics you take when you feel like you need to get something, all the different things that you're going to try to sort of map Dominic Monaghan's performance and the various behaviors he tries to get what he wants is, is a very interesting thing. Yeah. So he tells Locke, I want my drugs back. I need them. He regrets handing them over. To Locke and Locke is telling Charlie, "You're stronger than you know." Uh, and he lays out a, a a a series of processes for Charlie. If Charlie really wants his drugs back, all he needs to do is ask Locke three times for his drugs back, and on the third time, he'll give him the <laughs> drugs. And I'm pretty surprised that at that point, Charlie doesn't say, "I want my drugs back. I want my drugs back. I want my drugs back." Yeah, well, it's it's very. I don't know. This is the stupid brain. Me. The first thing I thought of was Will Ferrell's part in Austin Powers. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yes. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> or you can you can ask him a question three times, and he has to answer on the third time. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I think that it's just, it's, we we get a lot of these moments with Locke over the years on Lost, and a, a lot of them here in season one, where he like he tests people, right? Uh, you know, he uh, Ken McNichol style. It's a <laughs> test uh, that you know he's putting Charlie through to see if he is as strong as he thinks he is. Um, and I and I love Terry O'Quinn, and I think that he is. You know, he he does such great work as John Locke. Is it is it a little corny? This stuff. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little cheesy, maybe a little cheesy and maybe a little unbelievable that at this point in time, Charlie's like, really, that's all I got to do. All I got to do is ask you two more times for the drugs because I could tell you, Mike, if it were me. And if if this is like um, <laughs> it's for me, like it, it, I, I was very heavily uh, my, my drug of choice tends to be the marijuana. Uh, mm. That is that, that is that is what I will lean into when I'm in my in my moments where like I just need to get out of my head. Sometimes it's drinking. Sometimes it's weed. Uh, and, and for me, if this was weed and I had only a little bit left and I was really, really, really itching and I was so far down that hatch as Charlie is with the down heroin. The hash. You know, down the hash, yes. And if Locke had said to me, like, just ask me two more times for this, I would have just said, like, okay, now, now, now. Let's go. <laughs> Bring it back over to me. And I don't think I would have talked to Locke again for the rest of the time. So I guess I'm glad that I don't have a John Locke in my life who's telling me what I can and cannot do, uh, because I think that I probably would have made worse choices than the choices I've ultimately <laughs> made. <laughs> the interesting thing about this whole ask three times thing is... You know, I did a little bit of research, and from what I could glean, and again, I would love if any psychology experts are able to sound off in our feedback about this, John Krause looking at you. I looked at this idea that, you know, psychology tends to say that you should ask the question why three times to get to the truth. And I don't know if it's just wearing down the veneer of, like, I guess, rejecting the knee-jerk response, maybe rejecting an initial uh, secondary deflection but they feel like asking a question three times in a row is going to get to the heart of the matter. And I wonder if there's something in that. You know, three is a, is a nice little number. Three is going to be a nice recurring number through the course of this episode. Ironically enough, it's not four. But I wonder if Locke purposely chose three to, you know, feel like by the time Charlie does it for the third time, the truth will come out as to whether he does or does not want it. And if it's the former, why exactly he does need it. Okay, so Locke is going to tell Charlie that having choice, it's the only thing that separates you from him. And he's pointing at the boar, and then he kills the, the squealing boar. And in my notes, I have a sad face uh, because the pig makes a very sad sound as it dies. I don't like to see the animal die. But then the pig's going to go into the sideways universe, Josh. I guess. I guess. Uh, well, yeah. Is that because Kimi's making breakfast? He's making bacon and eggs yeah. uh, when he... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like, he, he wakes he up, he's like, oh, thank God, I'm babe, pig in the city. And Kimi's like, gotcha, uh, sucker. Yeah, I think the sad face is also because, uh, by virtue of the fact that the boar dies here, I know that I have to give it an LVP point. Yeah, well, we said the episode. boars were one and done. Little did we know, it was going to be, like, <laughs> boar central for the first season of Lost. Look, if you die, you get an LVP point. That's the that's the, the precedent I've established. Oh, boy, Mikhail's going to be in a hole deeper than the caves by the time we finish Mikhail's got a lot of points to lose coming up for sure. All right, back at the beach, Saeed has come up with like some sort of antenna thing. It's very impressive, Saeed MacGyver here. Yeah, so, I mean, also in terms of the timeline, because, you know, we had his initial ideas about the transceiver stuff, and then once they sort of heard Russo's signal... They're like, okay, maybe not, you know, in Walkabout, this is when Kate uh, climbs a tree and nearly breaks the thing. So maybe that sort of set him back a little bit. 
Do we wonder how much time has passed between that initial attempt and him being able to construct this makeshift antenna and come up with this whole, you know, triangulation plan? I'm sure that people have like actually like charted out the exact amount of days that it's been, but that was the end of Walkabout, right? Yes. Like that's when when things got busted up, and so we've had two episodes since then. I would I would guess two days, two days or so would be about my estimate uh, that it's that it's taken since then. Um, maybe three at the absolute most. Um, so not a long time. It's you know all things considered, given what he has, uh, given the resources that are available, uh, the fact that he's able to rig this up is pretty impressive to me. Um, Said's going to come up with a plan. He's going to take there's there's these three antenna. Uh, we're going to make three points of a triangle. We're going to place one here on the beach, one in the jungle, one on higher ground. And if the French transmission is coming from somewhere in that triangulation, we will be able to find where it's coming from. Uh, but there's also an issue of battery power, uh, that the batteries that they are going to be using are dying. There's no way of knowing exactly how much time they've gotten these batteries, maybe a minute, maybe more, maybe less. Uh, so they need to make sure that they are going to be synchronized with turning on the power. So they are going to do that by shooting off these bottle rockets into the sky. Uh, they found bottle rockets on uh the you know in the in the luggage of oceanic 815 saeed's gonna tell kate thank god for fireworks smugglers uh, is, it, is this a I, thing is i didn't realize that people would be like oh going to australia better pick up some m80s and uh bring news <laughs> news news to me our friends from down under you'll have to let us know if this is like a thing that you can just very easily buy fireworks and smuggle them out of sydney feels a little excessive uh, you can just cross state lines also no i'm very unnerved i hope that yeah. the same fireworks smuggler is not also the creepy doll smuggler because then i know you're gonna <laughs> you'll be looking out for a traitor in your midst soon enough uh, but like i fear yeah. for that person more in my camp rich take note the firework smuggler and the doll smuggler, same person. Uh, the, the old next oceanic smuggler. The game yeah. is afoot. Oh, that's going to be a great episode of the Lost RPG. I cannot wait. Uh, they need a bigger battery for the transceiver. Uh, and Kate has an idea of where they can get it. And it's going to be Sawyer, who has fully moved into the infirmary. Uh, and Kate's like, you got to have a laptop. Got to have some sort of sweet, sweet battery for a laptop that we can use. And Sawyer's like, yeah, maybe. But what do we got? What are you going to give me? What's going to what what could you trade me for it? Uh and Kate like really rips into Sawyer at this point. It's like, "Wow, you're like a parasite. You're such a terrible person. <laughs> Nobody misses you and you're horrible. I don't feel sorry for you. I pity you." Uh, so it's like, "Ooh. Uh, oh, okay. Take take this big ass laptop back." Yeah. What, what do you want to give me? Okay, I'll tear you a new asshole. That's what I'm going to give you. <laughs> yeah. That's what's up. That's what's on offer. Would you like a second asshole? Because yeah. here it is. Enjoy. Take yeah, you it. already have bullshit coming out of your mouth. Now you have a third hole for it, too. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So, Sawyer's like, okay. All right. Here's the laptop battery. I guess I've never seen a computer like that, by yeah, the way. Yeah, it, was, it, it looked it, like a briefcase almost, right? Like, the, the battery was very much deconstructed. I guess these are, like, early 2000s laptops where that battery is significantly chunkier i feel like laptops nowadays have more ingratiated batteries into the hardware but yeah i was very confused uh and i guess saeed what happened to team electronics didn't nobody find a laptop after you gave those marching orders so long ago no i think it's because sawyer was just hoarding it so you know the laptop went unaccounted for at that point yeah well it'll be uh, and Sawyer, I should also mention, I guess, compared to your progress, Josh, can you eyeball how further he is on Watership Down than you are? 
I have made no progress on Watership Down since the last update on Watership Down. That bonus podcast will come eventually. But I think it's going to come a little bit later than maybe we had. <laughs> we had so, so Sawyer, It'll definitely come. Sawyer's the one at the book club being like, Josh, did you read the book? I know. I know. I'm definitely out of the book club. No, the Watership Down podcast definitely coming. Fall TV is upon us, and I am very, very deep in the trenches of that right now. So uh, the the book reading is going slow. I would say if we make it out of October and I have not finished Watership Down at that point, then I have truly failed us all. Uh, hopefully, that will not be the case. You will know as soon as uh, as soon as soon as possible. Uh, you will know the updated status on me and Watership down all right well let's go back to jack and hurley at the caves and they are bringing all of these medical supplies back and charlie's like oh hey what can i do what can I, how can i help because he's really trying to get his act together at this point you know he's gotten some tough love from john locke locke's not going to give him back his drugs so easily so charlie's like okay um, I'm I'm trying I'm gonna try and make the choice here i don't want to get my throat slit like the boar uh by locke uh, and so he wants to help and he goes and he, he's going to grab the bag and by grabbing the bag instead, he just like spills everything everywhere. Uh, and it's just a, it's a, it's a real to do Mike. Yeah. He really like Mr. Beans this up. And I'm pretty sure that's how Jack is regarding him at this point. Not a big fan of physical comedy though. Charlie's happy because Jack promised it last week, but he finally has found the drugs. Yeah, he has. Uh, and and so is Charlie. <laughs> so Charlie, Charlie's going through the supplies. He's like, "Ooh, all sorts of good stuff here. Let me see what you got." Yeah, I'm very surprised actually that you know Charlie. I know that heroin was sort of his main vice, but I'm surprised he didn't like try to turn to opioids in you know the the heat of the moment. Well, I think in the moment, what he's doing is he's looking for anything he can find. Uh, this is very relatable, you know. For for me, like if it's if if weed is my drug of choice, and if I cut that if I cut that off for myself, uh, which a couple years ago I did. Uh, then very quickly, it's like, okay, well, what else can I throw myself into so I can be in a state of being that is not entirely myself because I'm so uncomfortable with who I am? Uh, and it's like, okay, well, maybe I could just drink a little bit more than I usually do. Uh, and so I, I think that there's something similar that's happening with Charlie here. Where it's like, all right, well, I guess I'm not going to be a heroin user anymore. What else you got? What else? What else is on on, Ooh, on sale? Anxiety today? medicine. Sure, I can abuse that. You know, and like it's at a certain point, it's like anything that will get me to not feel the way that I currently do. Uh, and I think that that's what he's doing here. Uh, I will note when Jack says that's diazepam. It's for anxiety. Uh, I literally have in my notes. Ooh, give me that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you'd be like, okay, great. <laughs> you know, I like that instinct still very much exists in me, so that makes me nervous. Uh, but that was my first response to that. Uh, and my second response was, ah, diazepam, which I believe is what Solid Snake takes in the Metal Gear Solid franchise in Ooh, order so you to... Think Charlie's going to be hiding under a cardboard box soon? Yeah, he takes it whenever he's on a sniping mission. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's just a little factoid for, your, for you uh, MGS loving uh, folks out there. If, well, if only Charlie had done metal instead of ro- uh, rock music, it would make more sense. <laughs> I know. Uh, but yeah, so Jack's going to say, listen, this is uh, strong stuff for a headache because Charlie's like, yeah, I just got a headache. It's not a big deal. Uh, and Charlie's like, look, I just want to be helpful. And Jack says, don't, you know, go get some water. Go take care of yourself. We don't need you right now. Um, and I don't think that this is Jack being a jerk. It's, you know, the, no. the way that it's framed and the way that Charlie receives it, certainly that's how Charlie's taking it. Uh, but I think that this is Jack, certainly by the way he's going to talk to Charlie later on in the episode, 
Jack is a super genius spinal surgeon. For all the shit that we give Jack, for all the smack talk about Jack, he knows what he's doing. He's seen a lot. He's a very good doctor, ultimately, at least by training, even if a few people die on his watch <laughs> over the course of Lost. Uh, and I think that he's, he's, uh, he's picking up what Charlie's putting down here already at this point. I think it's more yeah, for him. It's like, this is like... A future problem, probably like a near future problem, not as near as like I'm going to get trapped in a cave and have to confront Charlie on his drug addiction. Uh, but I think that this is on the list of things that Jack knows he's going to need to deal with. And I think it's like inherently something that he wants to do for his own good. Like if he's like, Charlie, I know is freaking out right now. I think he just needs to rest because I know that's what happens when people are going through withdrawal. Maybe the phrase, I don't need you right now, is something that rang really badly for Charlie because, again, this is going to really echo you know, the way that Liam has treated him and the way he sort of treats himself. Uh, and he also directly disobeys Jack's orders when Jack's like, yeah, go get some water. And Charlie just pouts and sits down and starts playing his guitar badly again. Yeah. So we go to, we, we flash back, we continue the conversation be- between Charlie and Liam. And Liam is really, uh, he's really putting the screws on his baby brother. Uh, he's like, oh, you, you, we got to keep doing this. Charlie's like, no, I'm done. There's too many temptations. I don't want to do it. This sucks. Drive shaft stinks. I don't want to do it. And Liam's like, but we need you. They're your songs. And if you don't want to do this, then I'm going to be nobody. You want to take yeah. away my chance to be a, be a somebody here? Uh, he calls himself a clown with a pretty face, which maybe you could stop after clown, and that would probably be more appropriate. Charlie tells him, I love the band, but it's not who I am. Sometimes I get lost in it. And uh, wow, relatable content. <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah, like, which again, maybe maybe that lost slut shirt is becoming more and more appealing at this point. You know, I I think often for me, like I I find myself like I love what I do for my job. I have a really cool job. I get to to you know talk about and explore um, you know things that I would I would just be watching and talking about in my life anyway. And the fact that I get to do it in a professional capacity is so so cool. But I can get lost in that, uh, and I could find myself feeling like, am I just the job sometimes? So I hear I hear what Charlie is saying in this moment of I love the band but it's not who i am and sometimes i just let myself become the band uh and i i think that that's what charlie ends up going through through this flashback storyline right of like he falls deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole of of substance abuse and like dependence on like drive shaft needs to come back like i need this powerful force back in my life uh but he's in this moment of honesty and clarity here of like the music is great and i love the music but like I'm not the music and I'm letting myself become the music and I don't want that. Well, also, I feel like he's also saying that the activities, the relations they're taking a part in, lurid or not, are not him. He feels like that that rock and roll lifestyle is something that he is not. And I think that even though Liam is the one to say later, I am drive shaft, I feel like Charlie more so feels it. Yeah. Where, especially when Liam basically tells him you're nothing without drive shaft, Charlie says, okay, my fate and Drive Shaft's fate are two twin phoenixes at this point. Where I goes, the, where I go, the band will go. If the band fails, I will fail. And yep. I wonder if you know that's going to cause not only dependence on drugs, but also dependence on Drive Shaft as yeah. well. It's really interesting to see not only the addiction to drugs, which is very apparent, but his addiction to this lifestyle because as he believes if he doesn't have this what else is he yeah these are things that are true of people with addictive personalities speaking from experience like i think that like it's very very easy to um to find yourself into these in these places of like all or nothing uh 
um, like either like you have to completely walk away from the thing. Like that's the choice that he's saying to Liam here, right? He's like, if I say we're done, we're done no matter what. We walk away. It's not like if I say we're going too far, we stop down and we reassess and we figure out how to find some middle ground with this thing and come to some sort of peaceful coexistence with this thing we both enjoy and not let us destroy let it destroy ourselves. Instead, it's either we're doing this and it's great or we're not doing it at all. Uh, and no I th- moderation. Yeah. And I, and I think that that, like, I, I feel that very deeply in my bones of like, either like I'm all the way in on something or I'm all the way out because I can't get close enough to it. Otherwise I'm just going to be all consumed by it. Um, I think that it's, it's very hard to find that level of, of balance for, for people who, who feel things the way that Charlie Pace does. Uh, and, and certainly the way that Josh Wheeler feels things. Yeah. So, so I, I feel it in this moment and I, and I think that you see it all throughout the flashback yeah and it doesn't help that liam is essentially the devil on his shoulder the entire time yep, right absolutely. every time charlie's making an arm at liam's the given the 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 other side of it being like yeah but it'll be fine you know i'll pull you out if i see that you're drowning i'll be the one to dive in and i won't be a boon we'll all, we'll all drown as well i'll actually pull out and save your life when it turns out that liam's an even worse swimmer than charlie <laughs> uh even i mean though that's not much to say considering that charlie's apparently an excellent swimmer unless he has drugs in his pocket right absolutely all right so we we get out of there they, they're gonna do the band the band's gonna be a thing charlie's feeling good about it feels like he's got some power he will be uh disappointed uh in in no time at all mike uh but back on the island at the caves we check in really quickly on your favorites the quans uh Jin's wrist it's slowly healing but it still hurts a little bit uh, and Sun is trying to to help him through it, um, but Jin doesn't want to hear it. And also, he's like, "Why are you wearing that? Why are you wearing the tank top? It's just a tank top." And Sun's like, "Yeah, you know what? You don't get to tell me not to wear the tank top right now." And this is—I know I said last week that the cut cutting of the material of you know Sun being the one to speak up and be like, "Jin, we're going to the caves," uh, wasn't necessary considering the long term arc of these two and how we'll sort of get those beats you know built out, but. I kind of wonder if this scene doesn't really make sense unless we have that, you know? I mean, I think it makes sense. I think maybe it would make more sense. Like, maybe it would land a little better if we did have that context. Um, But I think that they're slow arcing it out, right? Like, I think that we're getting... uh, We'll get in next week's episode. We'll get in Confidence Man, um, Sun helping Jack out to to save uh, Shannon from her asthma attack. That she mm-hmm. has some ideas for how to do that, and Jin is going to protest a little bit, and Sun's kind of going to proceed with it anyway. Uh, so it's a it, you know it's a, a few steps forward, a few steps back kind of deal with the Sun and Jin dynamic right now. I think in the in the greater context of this episode, it's sort of just a scene that exists. You know, yeah, doesn't really well, I think, add much yeah. or detract much in either way. And I think the fact that they're going to at least be there to help with the cave in stuff, they, I think they just want to also set up the fact that they were there. You know, I think especially in these early episodes, they really want to set up the exposition early on and also remind people of like what happened in the last episode. So we do do a bit of like a check in with everyone who's at the caves from our main cast so that when this cave in happens, which is the exact next scene, it'll make sense as to why those characters are there at that particular time. All right. Well, let's get into that scene because Hurley's going to come to Charlie. He's got like, uh, is this your guitar? And Charlie's like, oh, yeah. All right. Finally, you recognize me. You know, drive shaft. It's me. I'm the bass player. And Hurley's like, yeah, I don't know who that is. Uh, like, like he's he's just like very dismissive of Charlie right away, uh, and I think that we give Charlie a lot of shit later on in Lost for being very dismissive of Hurley when Hurley tells him the story about being a lotto winner. Uh, but Charlie himself has tried to open up to Hurley a few times to be like, "Don't you know who I am?" And Hurley hasn't really heard him, so 
Uh, I mean, to be to be fair, we also then had the two of them making starting a friendship, but it was also com- coming from Charlie being like, "Hey, I want to impress a girl. Teach me how to fish." So they have a weird dynamic to begin with. I think once Charlie's going to settle down a bit, I feel like post withdrawal Charlie is going to become a lot more stable. And that's when he's going to open his heart for Hurley to come in. Yeah. I think at this point, too, um, if I'm remembering right, yeah, it's it's, see, it's season two's Hurley episode, I, which is episode four, where we're going to see Hurley and DJ Qualls going out on the town after Hurley quits oh, uh, Mr. Klux. Uh, and they're listening to you all, everybody, in uh, in the record store. And that's when DJ Qual says drive shaft, more like suck shaft. So Hurley might not even really know who Charlie is. Yeah, he, only, or, he only knows suck shaft. Yeah. Or if he does know who Charlie is, it could be that he's like, oh, God, it's the guy from suck shaft. He seems like a nice guy, but I'm also not a good liar. So if he asks me if I'm a drive shaft fan, I'd either have to lie to him or tell him that his band sucks. So maybe Hurley's actually doing Charlie a kindness by not engaging him on uh, his pre-island life. Oh, I love turning on our journey by getting... <laughs> can't wait to get to the DJ Qualls episode <laughs> of Lost. DJ LaBelle Qualls. That's <laughs> going to be great. Uh, but yeah, so Hurley's just saying, yeah, actually, I, it's not that I know who you are. It's just that your guitar is in the way. And that's the, that's it. That's the, that's the straw Breaking that breaks point, yeah. the camel's back. And it is the straw that is going to lead Charlie to go to Jack. And it is going to break the caves as we will hear in sound number three you know a lot of people look up to me they respect me and you Charlie. you just treat me like i'm some bloody child like i'm some useless joke what are you talking about charlie's not good enough to do this charlie's just in the Let's way sit down. Put charlie onto that. You, oh you're gonna look out for me yeah we'll look out for each other that's how Charlie, it is just calm down interested. all right you're not yourself right you now. don't know me i'm a bloody rock god It's simultaneously brilliant and stupid that after Charlie says, I'm a bloody rock god, all the rocks fall down yes. on top of well, him. Well, my, my question for you, Mike, is, is it possible that Charlie Pace is literally a rock god? Uh, and much like Walt can talk to animals and Hurley can eventually talk to ghosts, does Charlie have some sort of like special plate tectonic superpower where he can like destroy the island? where he could command the rocks. Is it possible that Charlie Pace is, in fact, a bloody rock god? I would like this if he was like an earth... Now, the qu- there's two sides of this. He could either be like an earthbender from Avatar The Last Airbender, where he can manipulate, terraform uh, land around him, or it's that he's more so like a rock biter, where he likes to partake in rocks and can manipulate them that way. Mm. Uh, so he likes to... He, he feasts on a steady diet of rocks. These were big, strong <laughs> hands that played guitar. Listen, if he can't get his hands on heroin, uh, the rocks will do. If that's- <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll get a high off of rocks. I don't care. I'll yeah. lick some stones. All right. So the bloody rock god Charlie Pace has caused a cave-in. Uh, he is able to escape. Jack is not. Uh, everyone is very concerned, and rightfully so, that the island's current only doctor is trapped in a cave-in and quite possibly deceased. This is an issue. This is not good for anybody involved. Uh, and Hurley is going to tell Charlie, hey, get out of here. Go run to the beach. Go get help. 
Make sure you tell Kate. Again, Hurley's still like shipping them as the OTP of the island, even if they're in dire straits. So this is also Hurley's sort of bleeding heart as well, right? Because he's uh, he's sympathetic, even though the messages will certainly get lost due to the people transceiving them, ironically enough. Uh, there's there's good intention here. Yeah. All right. So we cut to Kate, who is in the jungle with Saeed. Uh, and they have an interesting conversation here, right? Where they're walking and they're talking and they talk about how the odds of finding the signal are about as high as surviving the plane crash, which is to say not very high at all. I know you don't want me to keep using the word high. Uh, and Saeed is the guy who's like, listen, uh, the tail section broke off. Uh, our section cartwheeled through the jungle. We escaped unscathed. You call that blind, dumb luck? No one's that lucky. So look at Saeed, who is uh, typically, I think, thought of as a, a very practical man, a man of science, much more so than a man of faith, even though we see some of his faith in season one, even later on in this very episode when he is going to be you know, speaking to a higher power. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I keep using the word. Uh, to, to... <laughs> see, now that I put it in your head, it's not going to leave. You're oh my addicted God. to the word high. I know. Oh, my God. It's very triggering. Uh, <laughs> it's very personally triggering for me. Uh, but you know, to, to have him talking about um, the odds of their survival in this way, I think, is, is pretty, pretty fascinating. Yeah, well, Kate specifically replying, some things just happen, no rhyme, no reason, is... Very interesting, considering that I think some people who were watching at the time certainly felt that way, though we will find out, given the greater mythos of loss, that is the complete opposite between the way the plane crashes, the reason why they're there, the reason why they were put on the plane in the first place. Like, there is rhyme and there is reason. Yeah. I think maybe, like, Jacob is, like, watching from the woods being like, okay, so Kate doesn't believe in just, like, destiny and really powerful things. Scratch her off the list of candidates. She yeah, does, go to the lighthouse. Let's she scratch does, it off. She does not get a number. Or maybe he's, like, building out the case at this point. It's like, yeah, is she worthy of a number? I'm not so sure about that. He says that while he's looking at a wallet-sized photo of her mugshot. I know. <laughs> yeah. He's glad I got this in other sizes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, All right, so Charlie makes it to the beach. He's going to tell everybody what's going on. And Michael, here comes Michael, who's going to step up. He's going to be like, you know what? I've heard that on this stupid podcast at some point in the future, Wiggler and Bloom are really ragging me pretty hard, and they've been giving me all these LVP points. Today's my day to step up. And maybe do something about it. This is my destiny, damn it. And Michael, knowing that there are now issues involving the structural integrity of rocks and caves and things like that, this is his time to shine. So he immediately springs to action. He tells Steve, not Scott, of Scott and Steve, though we see them both here for the first time. Grab a couple of guys. It's an emergency. We got to go. So Michael, Steve, Scott, and a bunch of other people are going to head off to the caves, including Boone who's supposed to be on antenna duty, but Boone feels that he is so important and so necessary to every single important thing that happens on the island and every single life or death thing that he now needs to abandon his post and entrust Shannon with the antenna plan. And this is not a dig at Shannon. Shannon, like when Shannon says to Boone, like, obviously I can do this. I'm not an idiot. Like I know what to do. Because uh, Boone's like really like antenna splaining to Shannon what the whole goal is with everything. Uh, it's not a dig at her at all. It's for Boone. Like, 
you're talking about the doctor who's been trapped in a cave in and a bunch of able-bodied individuals are headed over there. Are you so strong that your individual strength is going to contribute any more or less than, say, Charlie's or some other person, Stephen Scott's friend, a Rodney Sesto even, uh, that you have to go to the cave and instead abandon your post at the possible plan of like finding the radio transmission and actually getting people off the island. I know that I've been a Boone defender, Mike, but I think that this is pretty shitty of, of uh, Mr. Mr. Boone Carlisle at this point. Well, I wonder if he's looking for some redemption, considering that the last time he tried to save a life, he completely bungled it and embarrassed himself in front of everybody. I do wonder if there's a chance where he wants to prove himself. Though, I will go a bit further to what you said about Shannon. The very first time I watched this episode, I was so sure she was going to screw this up. I know. And it's not, it's not due in part two you know, uh, not due in part to her capabilities, just the fact that, and we'll see this later on, that, you know, she's is easily distracted by things that might not necessarily be inherent to the mission. Maybe if Boone had described it in a way of, like, this will help us get off the island, she would have been laser-focused on it, but I was so sure between this and especially when Kate leaves her bottle rocket and leaves it to Sawyer that I thought this plan was going to get completely screwed up. Turns out it does, but it's not because of the two of them. It's for a dumber reason, frankly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be completely honest. All right, so Charlie, he's gonna he's gonna be looking for Kate. Kate's nowhere around, and Sawyer says, "I know where she is. Don't worry about it." Uh, she went off into the jungle with. She's he calls Saeed Muhammad. Uh, which come on, man, you're just early early Sawyer. Really, uh, really whiffing here, I think. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess M- Muhammad feels better than Captain Falafel in terms of, like, Muhammad is, you know, uh, one of the, you know, the founders of the, of the Muslim religion. And so all, I of guess, it, all of it feels very racist and bad. Oh, of <laughs> course, of course. But at least this is more of a direct reference to something within the Muslim faith than, you know, uh, Abdul. Does it speak to the fact that Sawyer is more uh, well-read than he uh, he gives uh, he gives off? I mean, this is a man who is going to be uh, reading Watership Down. He knows Star Wars inside and out. Uh, has he? They're really the high marks of high culturalism. Stop saying hi. I thought that we went over this. No, now it's in my head. I have oh, a contact high. Oh, it's bad. This is bad. Uh, but he's going to say, I'll go find her. You, Charlie, you just go back to doing whatever the hell it is you do around here, which is a low blow uh, for for Charlie. Uh, and through that, we go to another flashback, and it's time, Mike. We've we've waited long enough. We've made it over an hour into our podcast about the moth, and we have yet to play it. But the time has come to play sound. Lucky number four. Let's do it. So, Josh, can, can, I, um, can I play something fun for you that I discovered on uh, doing some research on Lostpedia? Absolutely. Uh, there is a song that someone has found online that sounds in the same family, I would say, as you all, everybody. Would you like to hear it? Of course. 
So, yeah. <laughs> Did you take the grapes? Oh, so, that is wow. uh, Barney from Barney and Friends singing wow. peanut butter. And apparently, Lostpedia people feel that it has a very similar pace, uh, not pun unintended, as you all, everybody. So, they may or may not be. If you sync up these two songs, they line up with each other. No, I think I can hear it. I can hear it. Peanut butter jelly. Yeah, you can hear it. It works. So maybe they should have done that instead of you all every butties. They should have like gone out to like a peanut butter company and done that jingle instead. It would have seen a bit more dignity from well, the, drive well, the, well, the fact that Charlie is going to be in diapers at some point later on in Lost leaves me to believe that maybe he went through like a phase where he was a huge Barney guy. Uh, and so maybe like Barney just like earwormed his way into Charlie and Charlie knew that he needed to to rip off that song and create you all everybody. Like it's possible mm-hmm. that that's the connection. Uh, so I can't wait for the B side cleanup. Everybody <laughs> everywhere with your relations. Uh, yeah, can we can we break down the lyrics for a second? Because listen, Charlie Pace marketed as a prolific musician. Look, Drive Shaft success speaks for itself. But when your lyrics are you all everybody, you all everybody acting like you're stupid people wearing expensive clothes. <laughs> I hate that line. So- so much well like what's supposed to imply like i thought it was like a, a gathering message of like hey everybody no it's like hey everybody you're all so stupid look at the stupid clothes you're wearing you're not wearing smart clothes like music slut shirts yeah, yeah. or your red frosted tips uh, oh god we yeah. have to talk about that yeah well there's that charlie also has like a, a really terrible mustache at this point in time uh charlie looks really really rough here as he's performing you all everybody and this is before he gets addicted to heroin uh, you know, so he's got he, he he's got nothing to blame except for his own terrible fashion sense. Yeah, this was a uh, like you would say, oh, this is another case of early two thousands fashion, but no, it's in a category also. And like the the drummer of Drive Shaft, I know he has no name. He's sort of like the drummer of the aforementioned Spinal Tap, and that I don't know, he seems to appear and disappear, maybe spontaneously combust. He's wearing sunglasses on stage. It's a what look. What is he doing? It's a look. It's a look, you know. But I, it's, it's, it's so impractical. It, it It's not very practical. Uh, I feel like it's more forgivable than the, the red frosted tips and the stash, I think, is a worse look. Uh, but the the shades and doors, I mean, uh, that's a that's a, a a tested look for a drummer, Mike, going as far back as the Wonders in the 1960s, the very, uh, very real band that definitely was not fictional uh and created specifically for that thing you do yes exactly the, you know the they played uh or what is the other band that played the house parties and uh can't hardly wait the oh right. and meyer and yeah. uh donald Faison. yeah i don't remember the name of the band but I, I i can hear them now uh yeah you all everybody it's iconic but i don't think it's iconic for the right reasons and oh yeah weird al probably had a field day with this oh well he could have at the very least and i do appreciate that like throughout lost they will acknowledge the fact that this song is bad because <laughs> <laughs> it ain't good it ain't good but it's it, it's catchy and you know it's uh uh, I'm sure that many people will leave this podcast humming you all, everybody, uh, for the rest of their weekends. So uh, apologies for that. They get off stage, and Charlie's very mad at Liam, and he was mad at Liam during the performance as well. Like as they're singing the chorus, like Charlie's like side eyeing Liam, uh, but Liam's the lead singer of Drive Shaft, and Charlie's issue with Liam is, "What the hell, bro? 
I sing the chorus to you all, everybody. And it makes me feel like, well, then what the hell is Liam's job, Charlie? <laughs> if he's not singing the chorus to you all, everybody, what the hell is he doing on stage? This I'm feels the one like that a has Charlie to sing everyone problem. Wrong. I want to accuse the audience of wearing stupid clothes. Not you, Liam, me. He's like, if I sing it first and then you come in, it's like, I'm not following the logic here, man. What's Liam yeah, supposed to do? Just like dance around on stage? He's got to have a job. And also, like, they could have both sang it. Like, Charlie went starkly silent I know. when Liam said So it seemed like it was purposeful, at least from what we were saying. But Charlie is staring daggers at his brother. And look, I am not one to excuse the actions of Liam, especially when he uh, just is like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's not going to happen again. And then promptly uh, throws his arms around some birds and a nice dash of heroin. But I think Charlie, uh, maybe this is also a representation of Charlie just sort of being very, I don't know, aggravated. Maybe this is like the not the first time that Liam has done this. And it's his music and he feels like he wants to express it, even if he is the bloody bass player of Driveshaft. All right. So, yeah. So Liam is going to he's going to be very dismissive. He's going to go off with the girls. He's going to take some heroin right in front of Charlie. He's going to give him the chill, baby brother. Uh, And it's not the last time someone will call Charlie brother. Uh, but it is among the first. Yeah, though um, that guy will do a better job of, you know, saving Charlie's life, at least for a little bit. Yeah, but then ultimately condemn him to his final death. So, uh, But he, he names his son after Charlie, so yeah. it all works out in the end. Um, all right, uh, back at the caves, Michael shows up. Uh, he immediately takes the lead. Uh, he says he was in construction for eight, count them, eight years, Mike Bloom. Uh, and so he's he's stepping into it. And Walt's like, I don't know about my dad being in charge of this thing. I feel like maybe we should go find Mr. Locke. But then Michael starts like talking about exactly what they are going to do, detail by detail by detail. He has very specific instructions for everybody. Like, you guys are on shoveling duty. You guys are going to be digging this stuff out. And like you see Walt like watching from a distance. He's like, oh, my dad's kind of cool right now. It's like yeah. the first time. And I like that. I, I And I like how everyone's not like, oh, we're going to listen to the guy who definitely did something to cause Jin to beat him within an inch <laughs> right. of his life. Yeah, right, yeah. Michael. We don't care. Yeah, I guess it's the second time because Michael did bring back Vincent, and I think Walt was pretty happy about that. But the, yeah, the it's times also, it's also Walt, interesting like, how I am also don't know why Walt went down there. I guess he just wanted to, to say and he's going to be the one to save the day by being like, hey, it's the doctor, uh, which is a really weird line in this episode. But I guess it is also, like you said, it's a, it's a key moment for Walt to slowly come into his father's embrace after Michael's had his arms extended for the first seven episodes of this season. All right. Well, speaking of arms being extended, let's talk about Sawyer, who's going to show up to Kate and Saeed in the jungle wearing a flannel shirt with sleeves on, sleeves intact. This is an appropriate shirt, and Sawyer looks fantastic. If Sawyer wasn't racist in this episode, perhaps he would score MVP points for the fashion. Sawyer has a hard time looking bad wearing anything, and that even includes mismatched glasses. Sawyer looking good. Yeah, looking good, but not speaking good. No. Because I understand that, you know, I think he's ticked off at what, you know, Kate's sort of snappily responding to him when he finds her and Saeed in the jungle. And so he decides to take a second, says, you know what? I'm going to eventually be a good guy. But not today, sister. I'm not going to say anything about the fact that Jack might be dead in the caves. I'm just here to hang out in my flannel. Yeah, just here to hang out in the flannel. Uh, And so he's going to now accompany them for their leg of the journey. Uh, Charlie's going to go find Locke. He's, He's come to Locke and it's very sad and mopey. And he's there to tell him about the cave. And he says, Jack's trapped in the caves. 
Locke does not seem that concerned. I think it's because he has faith that Jack is going to be okay. We could dig into that a little bit more, I know, in the feedback section. We've got some questions about that. Um, And then he's like, why are you really here, Charlie? And Charlie reveals the true reason. He says, I want my stash, Locke. Uh, I didn't realize how badly he missed his flashback mustache. <laughs> I need my frosted tips. I regr- need my stash. I miss my fashion. But Locke instead responds with, uh, instead of take a walk, it's, let's learn a little bit about bugs, Charlie. Yeah, and Dominic Monaghan's like, okay, this gives me an idea for something down the line. Yes, Charlie loves bugs. Uh, Dominic Monaghan loves bugs anyway. Charlie, not such a fan, but perhaps is about to be converted, at least on the beauty of one insect. As we turn to sound... Five, one of the great moments of this episode and the scene from which the episode derives its title. What do you suppose is in that cocoon, Charlie? I don't know. A a butterfly, I guess? It's much more beautiful than that. That's a moth cocoon. It's ironic. Butterflies get all the attention, but moths, they spin silk. They're stronger, they're faster. That's wonderful, but you see this little hole? This moth's just about to emerge. It's in there right now, struggling. It's digging its way through the thick hide of the cocoon. Now, I could help it. Take my knife, gently widen the opening, and the moth would be free. But it would be too weak to survive. Struggle is nature's way of strengthening it. Now, this is the second time you've asked me for your drugs back. Ask me again, and it's yours. I love this. And yes, it may be heavy-handed symbolism, but I'm happy with it, just because there's so much cool stuff going on here. First, Locke's struggle is nature's way of strengthening. I mean, you have to imagine that's something that he told himself every day as he was, you know, getting up out of bed and into his wheelchair of like, yes, you may be going through a lot of stuff right now, a Job level of catastrophe going on in your life right now, but it's all for a better purpose. It's all to make you stronger. So you have to feel like he's committed to that. And I just love the comparison of the moth to the butterfly because that is so clearly Charlie and Liam, where... You know, the the butterfly is the thing that's more beautiful, the thing that people remember more so. It's even the first thing that Charlie thinks of when he looks at a cocoon. But the moth is the thing that ultimately is more, quote-unquote, talented and has better values. It's just lesser regarded, but that doesn't mean it's any less special. Yeah, and of course, when I look at a cocoon, I think of the Brimley cocoon line that we talked about on last week's podcast. No, I agree with you. I think it's I think it's 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 a really really great moment. It's a really powerful moment. I think it is a highly relatable moment for anybody to whom life does not come easily, right? You know, what whatever it is you struggle with uh and and you know what you deal with in your day to day. The idea that like you it, at least for me like I think it's a, it's a very a uh, resonant idea of like I just wish something would come along and wedge me out of this horrible thing, like whether it's this horrible feeling or this mistake you've made uh, or this bad thing that has happened to you that was completely out of your control. And when when Lost is playing with like the faith driven stuff, the best in my opinion, it's when it's talking about it in this way of like um, you have to believe that part of the natural process of life is that you're going to struggle, but if you keep believing in the struggle, and if you keep believing that that's part of the natural cycle of your life, you're going to burst through the struggle eventually. That's part of your existence. like That's part of what you're going to be. That if you kind of lean into it 
um, and and allow yourself to go through the hard thing and to feel the hard thing and not to run away from the hard thing or find a shortcut around the hard thing that you will come back out of that hardened. Like you will come back out of that stronger. Uh, and for Charlie in this moment, it's a, I think it's the pep talk he needs to, to go back to the caves and, you know, say like, I can help him. I can do something here. And like for the first time, this was somebody who had already wanted to be of use. He wanted to be useful, uh, but I don't think was quite properly motivated. Uh, I don't think that Locke almost like killing Charlie via boar raid uh, was really going to be the inspirational thing that Charlie needed to hear in that <laughs> moment earlier in this episode. If anything, like, yeah, I can understand his need for diazepam because the anxiety must have been pretty high after almost getting gored by a boar. But I think this is a lot more appropriate that he gets some wisdom from the island's uh, resident mystic man here in John Locke and figures out how to apply that to the immediate situation. I think it's pretty and, powerful. And the symbol of a moth itself is really interesting. I did some research into this, and moths uh, are sort of like, in terms of what they represent, the exact opposite of the butterflies, which are more diurnal, diurnal to the moths nocturnal. Even though they are, are, they are drawn to light, they do, they're only really seen at night as opposed to, you know, I guess, uh, old clothing as well. But moths <laughs> yeah. apparently tend to represent... Uh, wisdom of the other world, knowledge, clairvoyance, and secrets. And this idea that because uh, they're used to functioning at night when your uh, senses are deprived, they're more vulnerable and they're also a little more intuitive. They're more based on their awareness and inner knowing. And I think knowing both what's going to happen to Charlie's character and also the characters that directly relate to Charlie, I think those themes are very interesting and you know that moth is going to take flight throughout charlie's path for these next few seasons okay so back at the caves uh michael they the michael's team they burst through they found a hole they're able to talk to jack we see jack for the first time he's alive he's pinned he cannot move i feel like there's some irony in the fact that this guy who is so obsessed with the caves very nearly gets buried uh in the caves near adam and eve uh maybe even uh an additional few levels of irony in the fact that uh, that Jack will one day become a protector of this island, albeit briefly, much like Eve, uh, and much like maybe the Adam should have been, if not for other factors that got in the way. Uh, but Jack, he's concerned for Charlie. They're going to be like, he's fine. Charlie's fine. Don't worry about Charlie. Just worry about yourself. Um, we're going to move away from the caves and Saeed and Kate and Sawyer. They're still walking. Sawyer's still along for the ride. Uh, they've stopped at where they're going to set up the this antenna. Uh, Sawyer is going to climb a tree as high as possible uh, to get the antenna up there. And while he's doing that, Saeed is going to say to Kate, uh, I don't trust him with you. Uh, mm. She doesn't like that uh, Kate and Sawyer are going to be hanging out. Yeah, it's interesting because you can take that two ways. Of, you know, I don't trust you to be with him. Because you two are known to sort of, uh, you know, what's the criminal and the con man going to do together? Or I don't trust him around you because he's very skeezy and I feel like you might not be able to protect yourself. I yeah. guess it's the she feels it's the latter because she says she can handle him. Also, I guess Kate lost out on a tree climbing duty. Maybe because in society, it's like one strike and you're out policy where she dropped the thing before. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, nope, yeah. Sawyer's going up this time. Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely the second thing because he doesn't know that she's the fugitive yet. Uh, so... Uh, I don't know what pictures. What pictures? I mean, I I guess he's looking at what uh, Nadia's picture instead of Kate's picture, so that makes sense. Right, right, right. Uh, But yeah, so so I guess Saeed's gonna leave. 
Sawyer's like he he's 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 been charged with climbing the tree and he's like got like halfway up the tree maybe at most and like he's already like attached the antenna and I feel like that that's like a great metaphor for Sawyer who's just like yeah yeah I'm just gonna go like I'm not I'm not going all in like this is about yeah. as much as you can expect from me right now <laughs> yeah unless unless there's something in it for him and as Kate said if he has nothing to go back to then it doesn't matter to him if he climbs three feet higher and risks breaking his neck just to tie on this gizmo right um all right so back at the caves. Michael decides, all right, we got to we got to send somebody in. Someone's got to go in and unpin Jack. And Hurley's like, maybe I should do it. And Boone's like, no, you're too big. And he makes make some sort of terrible fat joke. And it's like, Boone, just the worst right now. Go back to the beach, Boone. Yeah. Jin's going to speak up. Nobody knows what he's saying. Hurley says, we don't understand Chinese, man. And Michael's going to correct him. He says he's Korean, man. Uh, Korean. Thank you, Michael. Thank you on behalf of all of us at Down the Hatch. And also... uh. I mean, it's also tough because this is also weirdly hinting still towards that son Michael romance that I'm so glad we never went down. I know there's definitely more of that to come in uh, a few episodes uh, in this in the near future here. Um, but Charlie's going to show up and he volunteers. I volunteer as tribute. He says, "I'm alone. I've got nobody here. Let me do this." Uh, and I, I think that this is like the most lucid, heroic Charlie that we get, like short of, uh, you know, the through the looking glass stuff. You know, this is really it's very a very, very early example of that. You know, he was on the trek before uh, so that he could get his heroin from the plane. He went on the second trek because he had the hots for Shannon and he was also high on heroin and not making the best decisions to go back into the jungle. Like Charlie hasn't made decisions that were purely um, you know, for the benefit of another person. And I think in, in many ways, this is also uh, for the benefit of himself, right? Like he's proving to himself that I am stronger than I think. Uh, so, you know, is it purely altruistic? Is anything, uh, to be completely frank? I think that, you know, you even like your most altruistic action, often a lot of that is fueled by the fact that like it means something to you as well. And I think that that's good. And I think that that's important. And I think for Charlie here that this feels like a pure good thing that will give him self-worth, that will make him feel like he's useful, that will make him feel like there is a reason that he is here and that he can provide value here. Uh, And so he knows not only is he detached, he doesn't have people here on the island. It's also a little guy like he can fit. He'll make it through that hole better than a lot of these other people. So this is his moment. He'll Simon Birch it, you know, he'll crawl through the bus and save the kids falling into the lake. I don't know why that movie is permanently burned into my brain. Well, I think you're probably thinking of the fact that Charlie ultimately will drown. So that's true. And also, I believe Charlie also did hit a baseball that killed the woman he had a crush on, his friend's mom, by hitting her in the head (laughs) with it. Um, But but it's also it's interesting comparing uh, the two like biggest solo members of the island as well. Like you said, Charlie's going to Charlie's really going to say, like, I have nobody here. I mean, this is underlying for both him and Sawyer this episode, but it's so interesting to compare what they do with that status. Whereas Charlie's saying, okay, uh, you know, I'm not connected to one person, so I'm going to be connected to you all by trying to help out the group as much as I can. Sawyer takes the exact opposite approach, as we'll see in this next scene even, of I don't know anybody here, so therefore I'm going to take a step back from everybody and not bring anybody in unless it's for relations. And just to see the way they, those two sort of handle the position that they're in is very speaking of their characters at this moment. Absolutely. All right. So he's going to sign on for that job. We're going to cut away to Kate and Sawyer who are waiting for Saeed to send up the signal flare. Uh, and Sawyer's really trying to dig in about Jack. What is it about 
Jack? What is it about him that makes y'all weak in the loins? Uh, and she says, are you trying to be a pig or does it just come naturally? And I wonder if she... No, I'm a boar. I wonder if she specifically calls him a pig because he referenced loins. And everybody knows uh, the loin of a pig is a, is a tasty treat. Uh, and he says, oh, I get it. It's the doctor thing. Give me a couple of band-aids and a bottle of peroxide. I could run this island too. Uh, I think that's interesting, right? I mean, like, eventually yeah. Sawyer is basically going to, you know, run the crew. Uh, but know. but eventually, because I think that, you know, when he accidentally reveals the information he withheld, say what you want to about Jack again, but that is definitively something Jack would not do. Even if he hated the person, he would still give them very important information and not just, you know, throw, you know, do it for personal reasons. Right. Eventually he let slip like, man, maybe he would have fit you like if he had survived a few more weeks on the island, maybe he would have figured out that I'm not so different from Jack. And she's like, wait a second, huh? It's like, oh, yeah, he died. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. Like, he also completely stretches the truth. Instead of Charlie being like, Jack's in trouble, he's like, no, Jack's dead at this point. So come on, baby, get some. Yeah, yeah. And so Kate runs. She goes to the caves. uh, As soon as she hears it, she's like, I got to go and figure out what's going on there. And we linger on Sawyer's face a little bit. And there's like this look of pain on Sawyer. And I think knowing the greater arc of Sawyer, and in the very next episode, we're going to finally get some insight into why he's such an asshole. Uh, But like knowing that, like, this is how Sawyer... Sawyer copes, right? Like Sawyer copes yeah. by being terrible to everybody around him because he himself believes that he's such a bad guy. Uh, so he doesn't want to be loved. He wants to be hated. He doesn't feel that he's worthy of any good things. Um, and so when he throws all of that at Kate and Kate runs away and all of a sudden he's alone again, it's not something that gave him pleasure. It gave him great pain to do that. It's a reminder of how alone he is. It's a reminder of how uh, how thoroughly miserable he is so even though we're still in like deep lvp territory for sawyer to a point that it will be difficult to unbury him from the cave in uh, for a little while a little while i mean we we have a limited amount of mvp points to 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 hand yeah, out but I, we also have 5.5 more seasons of sawyer as well you know and i of course and i think that ultimately he will he will make it out in the green i think that he's going to be all right uh in the in the long haul but i don't think that he'll be as competitive for like top spots as some of the other characters that we'll meet along the way and some of the characters we already have um but i i think even though like so many of his actions are are so terrible here um it's it's nice to see like those 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 sides of of sawyer that are um you know the stripes that he says he can't change he can change them and so we're, we're seeing them already at this point Again, and let's compare the coping mechanism to the very next scene. This is sandwiched in between Charlie saying, I'm going to go, and then Charlie actually suiting up to go. Someone who says, you know, uh, I am alone and I want to, you know, want to be liked by everybody versus Sawyer who's saying, I don't deserve to be liked. Right. Uh, Charlie, I feel like, probably has that self-defeating attitude as well, but he almost medicates it. And granted, in a much more destructive way. But to see them both sort of handle their own self-effacing values in different ways. Uh, Such an interesting way to look at these characters. Well, I mean, that's that's the thing, too, is like, uh, you know, it's very easy to point at what Charlie's addicted to. Like, he's addicted to a substance. But I think, you know, what what Sawyer, in his own way, if you want to call it an addiction, certainly like a proclivity of like... um, you know, self-deprecation is probably just like a, a much kinder way of putting, you know, self-loathing really is yeah. what it is. And it's like, uh, it, it, he's so used to that. Uh, and like to, to experience genuine love, to experience genuine affection, to experience genuine friendship, uh, that's uncomfortable for somebody 
like him. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people that relate to, to Sawyer, you know, people who've been through abuse, people who have been through, uh, who, who've had to really scrape by to make it in life, uh, who've really had to struggle to survive and sometimes have had to do terrible things in order to just live. Uh, and what does that do to you? What does that do to your, to your soul and your foundation? Uh, I think that th- those are those are a lot of the reasons why Sawyer is such a great character in the long haul. Uh, but I think that that's and one the long of the, con. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that Lost does so well, though, is you know it's uh, you know for some of these characters, it's literal things that they are you know physical things that they are drawn to to destroy themselves rather than um, go through the painful work of evolving and mm-hmm. and becoming a better version of themselves. Uh, and also, and you put them in an environment now where they are deprived of all resources. Right of all distractions and it strips them down to who they are. I know we talk about this a lot in terms of survivor, another Island based show of, you know, when you're deprived of natural resources, you can only really turn inward inward and look into yourself. And granted, that's a very different type of situation where maybe the way you behave in the game is not the way you necessarily behave in real life. But I do feel like that introspection is similar of as much as Sawyer tries to bury himself in his one-liners and his books, the fact of the matter is he's going to have to reconcile up with who James Ford is and who Sawyer is and why they're so different. All right, so Charlie's going to go into the cave. He's got the flashlight. He's going to go slow. He's got the good luck from everybody. Boone tells him, be safe. And Charlie's like, I don't need to hear from you. Uh, and Charlie, <laughs> Charlie's going to go in and we're going to get a flashback. And I want to play just like a little tiny taste Sound number six is going to be very, very short. Uh, we don't need to play like the full confrontation between Charlie and Liam, but that's what's about to happen here where they're going to have like the big blowout where Liam, uh, where Charlie's trying to cancel the tour. Like he's calling it in. Like he's calling in the favor of like, this is the moment. We're too far. We're out. Drive shaft's done. And Liam's like, nope, that's not right because I'm drive shaft and I get to make the choice and nobody even knows the bloody bass player and piss off. And he leaves the heroine behind, and Charlie's going to do the heroine, and that's going to be the heroine origin story. Uh, that's what's about to happen. But the way that we're guided into the scene, Mike, I feel like is worthy of closer <laughs> examination. All these people, I can't leave you alone when you're Bloody hell. I just I hate Liam so much, and I I love I love how cheesy that that mo- that music is. Yeah, <laughs> like the weird like boo today we're doing drugs. Yeah, can you play it again? Actually, because I feel like that's what people need to focus on. Listen to this terrible background yeah. music. Here's that- the here's the do- here's the doing <laughs> drugs theme. <laughs> Everybody wants another piece. All these people, I can't leave you alone when you're Bloody hell. I feel like you I could mean, like scan it out to like doing drugs. Doing drugs, drugs, drugs. Yeah. Everybody wants more. Everyone wants another piece. Like I feel like this is a better song than you all everybody. I think maybe this is like maybe it's actual some I mean it's very bass heavy, so maybe this was a song written by Charlie. I'll also say I admittedly do not have much exposure to hard drugs like heroin, but I also remember from the very get-go of the heroin being in the film canisters. Obviously, that is very outdated, considering that uh, we no longer use film canisters in this day and age. But like, how much of a thing was that? I'm I am I am not necessarily speaking to someone who has more experience in that than I do. But I guess it's something I'm I'm generally asking the populace at this point. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, 
but that's what they're using. That's the vessel at the time. It's like a little little tiny thing that he's got it, you know. Maybe because like they're filming music videos at that point in time for Drive Shaft. Is that Yeah, possible? we gotta do we gotta film the music video to our hit new song, Do More Drugs. Yeah. I don't know how much to relitigate here other than the fact that Liam is terrible and yep. being a horrible brother to Charlie. And I mean, granted, dealing with his own shit, but we just don't like Liam enough and we like Charlie so much that I'm not really going to spend seven hours doing the deep dive into why Liam should get a break. Of course, I have empathy for the man, but he's also just a terrible brother to Charlie and I'm team Charlie Pace all the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel like his behavior is inexcusable here. And also... When we get to the the clean stuff later, even when Liam tries to do good, he still does bad because he sells Charlie's piano to, <laughs> to get right. the money to go down. They're like, my God, this man makes every poor decision at every single juncture he comes into. And yeah, this is definitely like an I am a golden god type of thing where he's clearly riding high on many levels. The I am drive shaft is a ridiculous statement, but it's really heartbreaking to watch Dominic Monaghan just sort of crumble and then this is the moment when he turns to the heroine with those green nails and gold scarf and it all. Yeah. Uh, well, if uh, Liam is a golden god, then Charlie remains a bloody rock god as he goes through the tunnel. He bursts through. He finds Jack. But the power, the seismic energy emanating from Charlie causes the cave to collapse even more. And the way in is now cut off. And Charlie is stuck in there with Jack. And he has the great line, I'm here to rescue you, which is a, a great little Star Wars moment. Uh, Charlie Pace, of course, a little short for a stormtrooper. Just a bit. But you know what? Uh, considering they were all cloned from the same person, I think that he might... He's, he'd stick out like Finn did. So he's, he's in good company. All right, so back outside the cave. Michael's trying to think. There's the cave-in. He's nervous. Kate shows up. She's like, why aren't you guys doing anything? And they're like, oh, good point. And so they start digging again. It really, really takes Kate showing back up to be like, Hey, get back to work. Yeah, though I feel like Kate's like the union buster. Like everyone's like, we're taking a break. And she's like, no, no breaks here. <laughs> no breaks, yeah. yeah. You want to get paid? Then get back to work. You uh, want time and a half? Yeah, yeah. Um, in the cave, uh, Charlie's in there. He pushes the rock off of Jack's arm. Jack immediately knows my shoulder is dislocated. Uh, he's the first of a couple of doctors on this island who will have a dislocated shoulder. Juliet's going to have the same deal in Left mm -hmm. Behind in season three. Um, and Jack, Jack is going to tell Charlie, all right, you got to pull on my arm as hard as you possibly can. And I guess that that is how you are going to relocate a shoulder. Uh, this is uh, a common thing in all corners of pop culture and fiction that this is the way to fix a dislocated shoulder. Mike Bloom, thank the Lord that I have not found myself in the position where I've had to relocate somebody's dislocated shoulder. I don't know if this is how it actually works. Uh, if I ever find myself in this situation in the future, I feel like it's probably what I'll, I'll suggest, like just pull my arm really hard and I hope I don't regret it. I just, yeah, I don't know. Cause the, the stuff that I've usually looked at, cause I uh, used to have acute tendonitis in both my shoulders. So Ooh, it wasn't necessarily so that they were risk of, of coming out, but they were, uh, and believe it or not, it was from lifting heavy objects, which is the most anti-Mike Bloom statement I've ever made. Which objects but, were they? Yeah, uh, what? What were the objects? Uh, they were, they were when I was touring with Missoula Children's Theater, we had a bunch of big poles that we would use to put up sets every week. And I basically lugged those around single-handedly. Wow. And as a result, I uh, 
really screwed up my shoulders. I've been trying to work on them. But from what I've read, I never dislocated my shoulders, thankfully. But usually I see something where you have to, like, put it behind your head and pull with the other arm. But I guess if you have somebody else, so I guess there is a, a pulling motion. I'm not entirely sure. But, yeah, I feel like Charlie should have given him the bad news of, like, look, I popped it back in place. But I don't think you're ever going to fly a plane again. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, well, what a what am I living for then? Oh, my God. All right. So after he does it and after he fixes up Jack's arm, we get another flashback, final flashback of the episode this will be a little bit of a longer clip once again uh we'll be guided into this clip with some ridiculous rock music uh because uh i feel like this episode just has a lot to say tacitly about uh the state of rock and roll in 2004 aka not very good uh but we're gonna go back to sydney australia and we're gonna find out why charlie was there he was visiting his big brother uh, and what we are about to listen to is the final conversation of all time between Liam and Charlie Pace. Charlie, what are you doing here? A bloke can't pay his big brother a visit once in a while. Of course you can. What didn't you call, you lunatic? What are you doing in Sydney? <laughs> it's all lined up, Liam. Eight weeks on tour opening for some band called Meat Coat. First gigs in Los Angeles. L.A., Liam. This is a chance to get back on a label. A real one. Oh, this is our comeback. Charlie, I don't want to come back. Yeah, right, well... Here's the thing. They won't book Driveshaft without you. So I'm asking, as a brother, the way you asked me. You were with me the night I missed Megan's birth. You were the one I was stumbling around dressed and we're trying to find a sodding fix. You're still using, aren't you? Oh, don't change the subject. That's why you haven't been returning my calls. Look, you're going to go and you get help, help, man. Unless you sod it. You're still a chunky. You did this to me. It was about the music. Music, Liam. You took that away from me. Listen. Why don't you stay with us for a few weeks? Karen and me, we can get you help. Sydney's got some really good programs ahead. Don't go. Thanks for your help, brother. Stay, please. I'm just looking out for you. You never looked out for me. I have a plane to catch. also mentioned that at the end of that flashback it was not mentioned before but uh the into the first charlie flashback and out of this last one they brought back from tabula rasa the awkward slow-mo yeah they did the little slow-mo walk away it's kind of like a cool guys don't look at explosions type of deal yeah but it's more so like cool guys run away from boars right right yeah yeah so they've got a little bit of the slow-mo happening here in the moth 
Uh, it's sad. I mean, I know Liam sucks, uh, but he meant a lot to Charlie. And I think in, in Liam's own way, Charlie meant a lot to him. Uh, and for this to be the final time that they ever see each other, that's, that's really, really sad. That being said, though, I am happy that, I don't know, I feel like this is something that Charlie had built up for a while, and I was kind of like, yes, queening Charlie when he's like, you did this to me. Yeah. Because it's all completely true, and Liam, I know, is trying to help him, but it's too little too late, and it's not like Charlie can't sell another piano to get to a, you know get help because someone else already did that. Right. It, it feels like while the gesture is appreciated, there is so much negative that you know he has so many LVP points and even this one offer to edge him towards zero is not going to work in this case. So in the cave, in reality, in the present, the good news is Charlie has found somebody who actually cares about him, and it's Jack, and he said he knows that Charlie's going through withdrawal. Uh, and he doesn't like candy coat it. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't bullshit him at all. He doesn't patronize him. It's just straight up like, how are you feeling? Like, are you like, are you okay? Are any hallucinations? Charlie has the really funny line of like, other than the conversation we had an hour ago in the jungle. No, we're fine. Well, uh, so did you that is actually referring to a deleted scene. It doesn't even refer to the conversation in the cave. Oh, really? So, yes, yeah, so let me actually describe that a bit because it's a crazy scene. So. A deleted scene from this episode, and this is reading uh, straight from Lostpedia. Charlie was to have hallucinated seeing Jack in the jungle dressed as Liam, specifically the music slut shirt, uh, referring to the cave-in, and then singing You All Everybody before disappearing. The scene implied Charlie had asked Locke for his heroin the third time and had taken some, and not till Jack later identified the hallucinations as withdrawal systems would we have known Charlie was continuing to resist the temptation. Huh. <laughs> so basically, there's supposed to be a weird sort of like mystery thing. Like I know you said there was no big mystery element in this episode, but we were going to see Charlie, I guess, go to Locke for the second time, maybe have another scene. Then he'll just be walking through the jungle, and we would think he's tripping out on drugs when it turns out that, as Jack will explain in this scene, he's just having hallucinations of himself singing You All Everybody. Oh, well, I am uh, I'm thrilled that that never happened. <laughs> I don't think it would have been very good. Yeah, considering that Matthew Fox was not participating in that big uh, circles guitar sing-along that made the rounds on Lost Twitter a couple weeks ago means that I think he's not ready to pitch in his pipes on network TV as of yet. Well, I think the other thing, too, is that I think it plays better this way. Like, I think it plays better as, like, a, a you know, a, a funny aside of him being, like, uh, other than the fact that I just hallucinated you in the jungle an hour ago, which would not have tracked because at this point it's been hours that Jack has been in the cave-in. Uh, you know, I, thought, I, th- I think that that's funny, um, but the fact that it's referring to an actually actual deleted scene uh, where Jack was going to be uh, a bloody rock god in his own right, uh, I'm I'm glad that that did not happen. That would have been mm. remarkably bad. Um, but Jack's going to tell Charlie, like, you're not useless. It took a lot of courage to come in here to try to rescue me. I'm not going to forget that. Charlie says, oh, yeah, for the rest of our lives? Jack says, yeah, I guess that's not going to be too long. And honestly, he's not wrong about that. Char- Charlie's, well, one of them. <laughs> Charlie's got like another like month and a half, two months on the clock. Uh, and Jack, I mean, not that far down the line, right? He's got three years or so, give or take. Yeah, but, he, but, he, but he's going to like circumnavigate the globe. You I know, guess. he'll have a bit more travel in his future, whereas Charlie's just going down. Yeah, Jack's got some other adventures to go on. Uh, but uh, Charlie says that the cave reminds him of the confession booth. And Jack says, I wouldn't have taken you for a religious man. Charlie's like, oh, you should you should meet my father. Uh, got a lot to got a lot to say about relations. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you about all the times I had relations. Now I can finally get out of the way. 
Uh, but then the mom... And Jack is like, no, stop. I don't want to hear about all these stories. <laughs> all right, anyway. I got to know you, dude, but like not that much. Yeah. But luckily, a moth breaks uh, what could have been a very awkward conversation. Yeah, so there's the moth, and Charlie's like, oh, it's a moth! Uh, and so he he follows it and leads them out of the cave. Like there's like his hand bursts through. Part of me feels like, what if like Charlie just like going after the moth and like trying to like fiddle around with the rocks? What if that had just killed them right there? It feels <laughs> like a very dangerous thing to do. I guess at that point, like you just got to do something. Yeah, exactly. Either that or you asphyxiate, which I guess it depends on uh, would you rather. But I mean, just like Locke said that, okay, you know, what I could do is use my knife to wind in the hole. Even though Charlie is the moth, he widens the hole for Jack, as it were, and that he's able to, you know, find a way to clear a path. So it's odd that, you know, Charlie went from the moth to the knife in this case. Yeah. Any chance that the moth is a dead moth and it's the smoke monster and the guise of a dead moth, the smoke monster? Yes, I love this idea that the smoke monster is now bugs. I think we've just become so paranoid that every episode Everything we're going to be like, the smoke here's a creature, could this be the smoke yes, monster? Absolutely. All right, so they get free... And Walt's the one who knows, like, hey, it's the doctor. And I was like, oh, it is. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, uh, I do love that they're all digging. And they're like, oh, the guy, they walk in like, oh, yeah, we came up over there. You guys, what are you guys doing over here? Yeah, and it's like, oh, it was Charlie. He saved me. And Hurley goes, dude, you rock. Uh, and Charlie's like, you have no idea. As the rocks <laughs> and then the rocks fall down yeah. on Hurley. <laughs> exactly. That's what you get for not recognizing my band. Yeah. All right. So they're safe. That's great. Meanwhile, Saeed is going to find the place where he wants to set up the antenna and, and listen for the radio signal. And he lights off the rocket. It's very dark for 5 p.m., by the way, which is when they're supposed to be setting off these rocks. I don't know. You, you and I had a trip to the South Pacific. Not I suppose you're right. Ago. You're not wrong. I'm trying to remember. Right. I mean, when you're on the equator, I guess it's uh, it's a lot easier for things to be you know sun up and sun down no, you're so right. quickly you're right you're absolutely right so he turns up he sets off the rocket uh, and shannon she's like talking to somebody about these idiot guys in malibu and she almost misses the firework if not for her friend who she's talking to she sets off the firework then we see a third firework go off but they're intentionally deliberately leaving us as to wonder if it's actually sawyer or not because Said's gonna take that as the cue to turn on the battery he finds the signal. He's super stoked about it. And then somebody comes up from behind him and knocks him out. And we know who that is. At the time, we don't. Mm-hmm. But it's John Locke. And for Rick's sake, I have I have no good explanation for this still. Yeah, we'll get into this later on. This it, is when uh, we're yeah. like, oh, Locke's doing some fun things for you know helping Charlie come into his own. And then he does this. I will also say this week in CGI, the very awkward acquiring signal and receiving signal uh-huh, messages yeah. that show up on that blank screen on the transceiver is just like, it's a little, little touchy. I admire loss for a lot of the effects it does. I mean, we're going to have the pig in this episode, but it just seemed a little too, a little too phony here. All right, so we go back. We'll talk about the lock stuff in a bit in the feedback section. We go back to the caves. Walt likes the caves. He would like to live here. Uh, Kate has made so, it. And so Michael's like, okay, uh, all right. It doesn't matter. Rescue doesn't matter to me for another like 10 episodes before I go about and build a boat. It's like, look, if this scores me cool dad points, I'll do it. But I think that it, they should absolutely be in the caves. This is exactly where they should be. There's gonna be if, there's, if they have people on the beach who could be there for rescue and keep the fire going, why do you and the kid have to be there? This is where the fresh water yeah. is. It's safe. Exactly. It's, it's not going to be first come, first serve. Okay, we'll only take the people on the beach. Just like, you know? and I feel like stay out of the actual caves. And, you'll and be this fine. is the only place where Michael feels, I think, welcome and given a positive reception by people. So he's like, I'm hanging out here. There might be another hero moment for me coming up. Yeah. Uh, so Kate gives Jack a sling. It's Jack's very first sling. Uh, 
and he's gonna record so much tv off of it i know <laughs> yeah exactly uh but uh kate says oh so these are the safe caves huh and jack says no it was a mistake it was a fluke michael's given everything else the thumbs up <laughs> that's not good that's good enough good enough yeah for jack. one person almost died but i'm pretty sure that's not gonna happen again yeah we'll be fine we'll be fine uh, but Kate's going to go back to the beach. If Saeed's plan worked, then they've gotten, uh, they, they're going to figure out how to get off the island. Uh, and they have like a kind of awkward thank you and uh, like a parting of ways. And that will be it for, for Jack and Kate. Before that even goes down, uh, Jack is going to be sitting with Charlie first. Uh, and Hurley's going to be hooking up Jack and Charlie with water. And I love the way that like Jack and Charlie are both just like sitting there and not even talking. And Jack is just like, this is a guy who needs some company right now. Uh, he yeah. needs to feel safe. He just did me a huge solid. He just needs to feel safe, and I just need to be here for him for whatever he needs. Uh, and, not, and not only that, but you know, he covers for Charlie when Hurley asks yep. him what's happening. Jack just quickly jumps in and says he has the flu. So Charlie has found company, and it's not necessarily by him being you know like overly reaching or even by uh, you know yelling at someone for saying you're not acknowledging me. It was there the entire time. He just didn't necessarily realize it. But once he crawled out of that cocoon, he was able to see the the wondrous sights around him, and that includes someone who does need him and does like him, relatively speaking. All right, so we get to the end of the episode, uh, and it's going to be Charlie going up to John Locke, who's come back with the boar. Somehow, he has butchered the boar, brought it back to the caves, but has also somehow knocked Saeed Jarrah unconscious very far away from where they currently are. Someone's going to have to explain to me the timeline on that. We will get to that. Um, but the end of the episode is just, it sounds beautiful. It's very yeah. evocative. It's Charlie going up to to John, who's just like, you know, brushing the pig uh, and the fire glow on both of them. Um, but, you know, rather than describe it, I, I think we can just hear it. And I imagine that you'll be able to visualize it. So let's let sound number eight play out the summary. <laughs> Are you sure you really want to? I've made my choice. Like, 
oh my god what is that somebody <laughs> throw like drugs on the fire what the hell i know we're cooking here man oh my god Locke must be aggravated with everybody who's so hungry and depending on him everybody wants some boar everybody wants another piece yeah, everyone wants some more and some more. Look, yeah. I'm one man, okay? I can only knock out so many people who are trying to get off this island. Yeah, yeah. But it's a beautiful ending to the moth. Uh, you know, there's some there's some kitschiness along the way that holds this back from being uh, like a top tier episode of Lost. I still think even like a 73 or whatever I ultimately put it at, uh, you know, it's really only like the, the 100 and below 100 episodes or above 100 rather for me that are episodes that like I could really take or leave. Um, you know, this is this is still a strong episode of Lost for me, and I I think the way that it ends, the look on Dominic Monaghan's face as he's made the choice, he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I have a, it's a, a new lease on life. I'm gonna start over. Look, in life, it's not that easy. Uh, <laughs> you know, recovery is not a straight line. Uh, it's very easy to to relapse and and to go back to use the lost parlance, and it's not as simple as being stranded on an island where you have thrown the thing away and you don't have a chance at having to brush up against it again. At least not until you uncover the Virgin Mary statues filled with all the heroin for the Beechcraft plane, but that's neither here nor there quite yet. Um, but I, I, it's still like a very hopeful idea and very hopeful image. And I, it, it played really nicely to me, especially at a time where like I feel a little imbalanced with some of this stuff. Um, mm. And so to, to, to go back and watch this one, even if I can't like say like this episode is a four point two because it was personally resonant to me, uh, I I can say that going back, it was empowering, uh, and uh, I I hope for you know if there's anybody out there that is listening to this that struggles with uh, some of at least um, you know vague similarities uh, or analogs of some of the things that someone like Charlie or yours truly or whoever uh, goes through and you know relies on some of this stuff. Uh, in order to just get out of your own life, um, that hopefully maybe this is this is a sign that you can you can you can find other ways to empower yourself, and you can you know you can take control. It's not easy, um, and yeah. it's it's not as simple as just throwing something in a fire. It takes some work, but I, I I do love the message of the moth ultimately, and I think played really brilliantly by Dominic Monaghan and a really great performance by Terry O'Quinn in this moment as well. Like when he throws the thing in the fire and there's just, like you say, you love that Terry O'Quinn grin. Uh, and there's a great one there where he says, I'm proud of you, Charlie. Always knew you could yeah. do it. Oh, and I love Dominic Monaghan. And I, I don't know, it's, it's tough to tell whether he's still flop sweating from withdrawal or crying, but him looking up at the moths of him essentially seeing his personification and seeing it fly and seeing it swarm Essentially, it's saying like, yeah, I'm going to fly now. I have had my wings weighed down by all these issues and I'm ready to shed those and fly away. And look, like you said, uh, it's a complicated path to recovery and it's going to be complicated for Charlie as well. Even though the rest of this first season is going to be relatively okay, he still has other things to get into. And obviously, season two is going to be a really tough trek there. And so I, I feel like while this was a really nice encapsulating episode for Charlie, I'll be very intrigued to sort of track where this is on the overall path. And how, you know, he deals with that addiction amongst many other things over the course of his time here on the island. All right. Well, before we get into the feedback in the 1516 Others section, let's take another opportunity to thank our friends over at True Car, Mike. 
what was it that you wanted to say before? Something about drive shaft. Let's go from drive shaft <laughs> to something you might drive at True Car. Yes. Okay. 60 seconds, Mike Bloom. That's exactly how long this commercial lasts if I read it at the appropriate pace. You know what else you can do in about a minute? You know who else is a pace? Charlie. You can get an offer for your car with True Car. That's right. And the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, Vincent, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get a True Cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you'll get an accurate True Cash offer from a local True Car certified dealer. It's that easy. After that, you can bring your car in and they'll check it out with you together. You can ask questions and get the answers you need so there's no surprises. Then simply leave with your check or trade in your car for a new ride. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. All right, Mike, 1516 others. You ready to get into the feedback? Let's do it. All right. Well, let's start by looking back. We have to look back. Uh, And other number one and other number two are both going to be concerned with House of the Rising Sun. Uh, We're going to first start by focusing on Sun and Jin, the Quans specifically. We had a lot of great feedback and reaction to some of the things that we talked about, some of the things that we missed in our recap of House of the Rising Sun. This comes from Craig Falkenham, who writes in and says, something that both the first time you watch the episode and on the rewatch really works. When Jin is first handcuffed and Saeed is asking Michael what caused the fight, Sun motions to her wrist, indicating the watch. But the viewers and characters think she means the handcuffs. Um, I gotta say, I missed that completely. Great observation, Craig. Love that. I know we talked about, you know, the fade in to Sun's watch during the flashback as sort of some nice foreshadowing. But yeah, I mean, it's great on so many levels. It's Sun indicating exactly what the issue is. It's her accidentally revealing that she learned English <laughs> right, right. by, you know, I think just sort of subconsciously, you know, hearing what they're saying and trying to respond. A lot, lot of fun little tidbits in there. Uh, Zalorian, which is an awesome name, uh, writes in about the smashing of the fish. Uh, oh, Lord. Yes, we have not proven ourselves to be very aquatic considering how much pushback we got from our thoughts about the fish smashing. Zalorian says, concerning the smashing of the fish, the most humane way to kill a freshly caught fish is to stun it. Render, rendered instantaneously insensible before being killed with a, pre- with a precise blow to the head. It's to avoid pain. It's actually out of kindness. I believe I responded to this tweet uh, by saying, wow, it gives new meaning to killing them with kindness. Uh, <laughs> you actually just like bash them to death. Uh, I, get, I, I buy it. I believe it. Who am I to, to speak out against uh, well, centuries, you're, you're the more ex- you're the more expert fisherman out of both of us. I'm. Would you have felt better if you thought this was an option to eventually kill the fish that you had speared? Yes, on the on the deep sea fishing expedition that Mike Bloom and I embarked upon in Fiji once upon a time, I did kill and spear a tiny little fish, and you felt so bad. I about felt it. awful about it. I really, really did. And now I feel worse about knowing that I didn't do the bashing. I should have smashed the fish. To be fair, you could have like put it on your toe and smashed it. You it was, it was unfortunately that small, but it maybe also also speaks to Jin's, uh, you know, the nature of the rug pull that we're going to get with Jin, where we think he's initially this big tough brute with coming home with blood on his hands, but it turns out that he's someone who is actually trying to actively avoid killing anybody, much like he's trying to avoid spearing a fish. He's trying to not, you know, he's trying to stun it first. Maybe that yeah. just speaks to how uh, courteous he is to all of his victims, fish or otherwise. 
All right. Daniel Brennan has a good observation. Daniel writes in and says, I actually think that the House of the Rising Sun's strength in showing how Jin and Sun's love story turned toxic toxic over the course of the years actually hurts subsequent Jin and Sun flashbacks. We essentially already know everything we need to know about their relationship prior to the island. Jin's humble origins are implied. We know about Sun's English lessons, and it's not a surprise she sought comfort in another man. The fact that Jin holds up the flower in the airport suggests he knows he has made mistakes. Basically, I love the flashback, but it steals some thunder from later ones. Um, I think that that's an astute observation. Looking at my latest rankings of Lost, the Jin and Sun episodes tend to be fairly low, and I think a large piece of that is like, Sometimes it does feel like the flashbacks are just kind of going in a repetitive motion. Sometimes it feels like the conflicts have been, uh, like we've gone through them uh, to a certain degree. And I think House of the Rising Sun is a really, really great episode, as we talked about. But I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that, like, it feels relatively full for Sun and Jin. Do you disagree? Well, no, I think we said this exact same thing about Taboo La Rasa with Kate as well, right? That when you sort of get their story arc in a entire flashback episode sans what kate did it's really tough to follow up on that without sounding repetitive to find those story beats you know uh i've recently listened to the through the looking glass podcast which is a fantastic podcast series that just came out i think it's a uh, based in uh or it's, it's hosted by sci-fi wire where they sort of talk about uh you know various topics around lost in honor of the 15th anniversary one of the things they talked about this time was uh there was one, you know, there's a question that somebody asked at like a panel to Damon and Carlton when it came to these flashbacks of like, okay, when will we see Jin uh, compete in a spelling bee? And that's the nice representation of the fact that some of these did get a bit derivative, which is why they really changed gears in season three. So I don't necessarily disagree with it. They're still strong characters that I like seeing what they do, but I feel like they're another set of characters along with Kate where we didn't necessarily need to go back for them. Right. We already sort of got a sense of where they came from, why they came to the, why they were on that plane, and what who they are on the island. This is more so filler than anything. All right. Other number two uh, is continuing to look at House of the Rising Sun, uh, but examining Michael and Kyle Slavin. Not a Michael fan. Kyle writes in and says, Ooh. Michael could have easily come out of the confrontation with Jin looking like the bigger man. He could have resolved it calmly. Instead, he both destroyed the one pair of handcuffs for future use and quote-unquote resolved their problem by looking like an even bigger bully than Jin. Any rational oceanic survivor should be looking at Michael as a huge, unpredictable risk from this point forward. If I were on the island and that night I get to choose beach or cave, I'm going wherever the hell Michael is not. Uh, I, I will counter as feels a fellow harsh. Michael. feels very harsh. Well, I also will say that apparently this is something that was in the original script but did not make the final cut, that the handcuffs apparently do not have a key. Sawyer, maybe that's the reason why Sawyer reluctantly handed them over to Saeed during the big beach brawl is because they lost the key at some point. So when Jin got handcuffed to that wreckage, there was going to be a, an unorthodox solution either way. So I don't think the sanctity of the handcuffs could have been preserved at any rate, just based on the fact that there was no way to get out of them other than an axe or cutting off Jin's hand. All right, let's go to other number three, some production notes. Uh, let's talk about Neil Hopkins, who is the guy who plays your friend and mine, Liam. Uh, not my friend! Not your friend. Neil Hopkins, uh, The Hatch, a lost podcast by Rosie Murphy and Sammy Roth. They did an interview with Neil Hopkins, uh, and there's some great information about him. 
uh, that stems from that that I think people might be interested in for The Moth. Um, the casting call for Liam Pace called for English and Irish actors only. Neil Hopkins was American, but he wanted the job. So he presented to his audition as English from the outset, wanting to make sure that April Webster, who's the casting director, wasn't looking for flaws in his English accent. He only re- revealed that he was American after he was cast. Uh, hell of a gambit. I feel like if you're going to go that far, uh, you should like really be like putting that energy into a series regular audition. Yeah, you would think so. But I guess... You know, maybe at this point, they didn't necessarily know that, hey, sometimes guest stars on Lost will end up becoming main series roles if they hit hard enough. But now I wonder, looking back, and I think um, if there are British listeners, I would love to hear from their perspective how, you know, how his accent compares to Dominic Monaghan's and if it really passes as a legitimate English accent. Because I know that we are certainly going to have a fair share of bad Australian accents over the course of these next few seasons, but I wonder if it will be the same with the UK as well. Yeah, I just thought that. I mean, I I can't even imagine. Uh, like, what's the what's the, what's the reveal? Like, he gets the job, and he's like, "Well, let me tell you something. I know you think that I'm Liam from Drive Chef, but I'm actually just Neil. <laughs> I'm just Neil I'm just, Hopkins just, from Neil Miniscoka, yeah, Frogert Slinger." <laughs> You know, it's just, uh, I, I just wonder what, what it was like in the room when he like took off the Scooby-Doo mask at that point. <laughs> yeah. Fun to think about. Uh, let's move on to other number four. And let's talk about Glenn Cannon, who is the actor who plays Charlie's priest in the flashback. Of oh, this the prying episode. priest, father, anything else. Yes. Uh, and we got, uh, we, we got one of the, the great listeners of Down the Hatch, Sean Yannell. Uh, had reached out to us on Twitter uh, with some comments about Glenn Cannon that uh, who who would have known? This is why this podcast is amazing and the community that we're building and and are getting drawn into this and uh, what everybody knows and what everybody has experienced in their own lives that they can bring to the table here. And Sean has a great story about Glenn Cannon. Uh, Sean wrote to us and said, The Lost Rewatch has been interesting for me on a personal level. I lived in Oahu for nearly 10 years after watching the show. I stopped watching the fourth season. I feel like I have much more of a connection with the show as a whole now. The Moth was a big gut punch to me because Charlie's Priest was played by Glenn Cannon, my college theater instructor who passed away. Whoa. I know Glenn and I, uh, I know Glenn and I know he would have been really into that story that Charlie was telling. Uh, <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, he continues, it was surreal seeing him again and in his element. He was such a great professor. I took as many of his classes as possible. He, was, he has to be one of the most prolific actors in Hawaii. He was in pretty much any show filmed on Oahu. I think it's. Uh, I think he had a specialized diet at home because every time someone was eating something in class, he would ask for some and then eat as much as possible. And he was teaching right up until he passed away. Thanks for doing this podcast. I will finish the series this time, says Sean. Wow, um, that's great. That's crazy, and I guess it makes sense. I guess we don't necessarily think about the number of Hawaiian locals that were used just for the fact that they were in proximity to filming. It's sort of like in uh, The Wire. How they used a lot of locals from the Baltimore scene to sort of, you know, uh, build out that type of stuff. But yeah, I mean, it also sort of got my head percolating that, Josh, what if this world is a sideways universe of Lost and the father, you know, the priest ends up passing away and then he ends up in the sideways universe, which is our world as a theater professor who's very hungry all the time. Uh, I kind of love that. Uh, I think that that is a great idea. Uh, and I think that you should pitch it to ABC 
Uh, and it's called We Are Lost. We Are Lost. We Are Lost. Yeah, it's called uh, Lost Sluts. What do you think, ABC? Oh, my God. I don't think it's going to play, Mike. I think you think it's going to play, and I don't think it's going to play. Listen, TV's dirty and raunchy and grody nowadays. They could go for just uh, an hour of, of John Locke butchering boars. Oh, my God. Boars. All right. Other number five. Let's talk about St. Andrew's Priory. Priory? Priory? I'm Jewish. I don't really yeah, know. Yeah, say there's two Jews. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. I say Priory because it feels like it could be literally pronounced like prior E. Okay, so we get the first appearance of St. Andrew's Priory in this episode, Ben Martell notes, uh, and specifically the Cathedral Church of St. Andrew, both internal and external. This is going to make many appearances in the show, uh, but you guys, the listeners of Down the Hatch, you're probably most immediately going to identify it as the set for Oxford from The Constant and Jughead. And I recognized it too. I was like, I know this is familiar for some yeah, reason. Yeah, same. I'm like, I'm like, this is the, like this. This can't just be some sort of random monastery. This has to stick out somehow. And I love the fact that this is now just like, if you're in London in some sort of antiquated building, please go to this place. Yeah. Uh, it's also, I guess, the Scottish monastery where Desmond and Penny meet in Catch-22. Um, so yeah, I, it functions well as an English cathedral, except as Dominic Monaghan says, you wouldn't find this place in Manchester without it being covered in graffiti. I've never been to Manchester, uh, certainly not uh, a cathedral in Manchester, but it sounds like a very colorful place to go. Yeah, well, I know all the people from Hare like to sing about it, so I can only imagine the rebellion that goes on around there. All right, other number six, we got to talk about drive shaft, Mike. I know you want to. This is this oh, is the time. Um, this is a uh, Ben Martell gathered this from the DVD features and the audio commentary surrounding the moth. So let's talk about you all, everybody. Uh, so the lyrics come from words that were said on a daytime talk show, believed by Damon and producer Brian Burke to be the Phil Donahue show. Uh, there's an LA musician named Jude who wrote the song, and his band presumably performed it as the scene was filmed with lip syncing. So, hey Jude, your apologies lyrics were weird. to you, dude. <laughs> Let's get the Jude count going. Uh, apologies to Jude. Uh, Drive Shaft was originally going to be named the Petting Zoo, which was the name of Damon Lindelof's high school band, but the name was already in use, so they had to pick another, the Petting Zoo. Mike, were you ever in any bands in high um, school? I was in, so when I was in school, what I would do is I wasn't in a band, but what I would do is we would do like school projects and it's like, I don't want to do any actual work. So let me like write a song about it. I actually wrote a song about rocks. I was a rock god. You were a bloody rock god. I was a bloody rock god singing about igneous and metamorphic and all that sedimentary rock. But yeah, I never exactly had from the, the special that they would show in science classrooms where there was actually like a heavy rock metal, like uh rock opera that was about sedimentary and igneous rocks. Do you remember that no, one? I, or is that just me? I've never remember. I, I mean, I guess the closest I would think about that is like Bill Nye, the science guy or like a schoolhouse rock thing. I didn't know there was an actual rock opera. Somebody out there listening to this is like, oh, my God, he knows about I-G-N-E-O-U-S, Igneous. <laughs> Dude, I, I could imagine that Drive Shaft would have accepted this oh. gig right after you all, everybody. is like, yeah, I guess we'll make an educational video about rocks. If you just heard me sing that and you know what I'm talking about, please connect with me uh, because it has been forever since I have thought about that. And it was definitely something that was taught in my science class as a youngling. I, and I believe uh, if you sync that up, it'll, uh, it'll match up to I Love You from Barney. Yes, I think that's right. <laughs> yeah. I was in a rock band once, Mike. It was called Gefilte Fish. 
Oh, uh, God. I can only imagine who made up that band based on the name. Syracuse University, 2005 through 2007. We were So was this like a legitimate rock band, or was this like four guys that were like, okay, we're going to play rock band together in some it was two. Room? It was two guys. It was myself and my friend, who was also in the astronomy class uh, that, I, that I so famously skipped. Uh, and he played guitar, and I sang, and we did acoustic rock covers of of songs that we should not have been covering, including the DuckTales theme song. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God! Which was, which was our uh, our go-to classic. That was, uh, that oh was like our Oh, my God. I just can imagine you being like, all right, guys, that was Wonderall. Now, coming up, something from your childhood that might have a little bit of a different coat to it. Yeah, it? yeah. Our best, uh, our best set that we ever played was uh, the theme song from Jurassic Park, into Killer Tofu by uh, the Beats. Uh, are you are you Doug. just like so? I mean, I would not expect anything less from you, Josh, to have a band that's completely pop culture focused and mm-hmm. not play any actual songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. The Jurassic Park theme song rendition was especially great because, uh, like, we just like very passionately sang like the la di da. It was great. It was very good. It was very oh, it's great. like very uh, Simon and Garfunkel yes. meets Jurassic yes. Park. And, and what would be great about it too was it would take people like a few moments to realize what we were singing. And then once, like, it was, like, totally, like, unmistakably recognizable as the Jurassic Park theme song. It always killed in the room. It was great. Mm, Very easy mm. hit. Uh, Drive Shack. band back together for this, for the purpose of this podcast. I've tried. I've tried. There have been, there have been many occasions in which uh, we could have gotten Gefilte Fish back together. Coconut, Pete, and Becky, I know you are listening to this, and I am sure you are still raw that Harrison did not go to your wedding, and we did not have the opportunity to reunite Gefilte Fish. And if he wasn't going to come to Pete and Becky's wedding, there was never going to be a Gefilte Fish reunion. Uh, I'm also uh, blowing off dinner with Harrison tonight in order to record this podcast. Oh, see, so. you could, there could be an. Op- oh, I'm I'm happy of taking Harrison's spot, but you are Gefilte Fish, Josh. Yes. Oh my God! Before there was Wombat Nation, there was Gefilte Fish. We had no hats. Perhaps we could change. Uh, that. And, and I'm assuming the humane way to kill Gefilte Fish is just let it play and then properly smash it against the tree in the quad. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, Dave Carlson had written into us. This was kind of cool. Dave Carlson had written in and said, I'm a musician working on a song about addiction based on Charlie and this episode. If you guys come up with a line that embodies Charlie and the challenges that he carries to the island, I will try to put it in the song. Oh, um, this is such pressure. <laughs> it's a lot. Of, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of pressure, but I feel like, uh, uh, if there's a way to seriously incorporate uh, everybody wants more, everybody wants another piece from Liam Pace, uh, I would be I'd be interested. Be interested or, if you could s- fit that in. Something, something like carrying an open suitcase, you know, yes. that is things are inevitably going to spill out no matter how tight you try to keep it closed. Yeah, I like that. Keep it closed. Let's see what we can get from that. Uh, other number seven. Speaking of cocoons, there's been so much cocoon talk here. In the podcast, uh, we can't we can't get away from it. Uh, this is from the series Bible. There's all these stories from the series Bible that didn't make it onto Lost that Ben Martell really wants everyone to hear, and I'm grateful that he does because this one is ridiculous. So, speaking of cocoons and speaking of moths, this is from the series Bible. This is a coulda woulda uh, alternate universe sideways universe Lost story. After a 48 hour eclipse, or should I say, a 48 hour eclipse. Oh my god, this person's a cap lock gets stuck on their computer or something. It's for emphasis. It's for emphasis. After a 48-hour eclipse, 
The castaways are intrigued by the appearance of thousands of strange, viscous cocoons in and around their camp. Curious, but unwilling to cut one open and investigate, a debate rages as to how to deal with this bizarre new development. And the cocoons are hatching! I Actually, you know what? I think I stumbled upon it. I think they're playing Mad Libs. I think that everything in Cap was a blank, and they just went around the writer's room and pitched random words. Because how else would you end up with a bunch of human-sized cocoons on the island? Yeah, I don't know. Did you say cumin-sized or human-sized cocoons? Like, I, they're cumin-sized, and they're very small. Very tasty, too. All right, other number eight. Let's talk about Charlie's flashback. And I think that this is an interesting note from Steve Flowers in relation to what we talked about with Sun and Jin and House of the Rising Sun. This is from Steve. My rewatch take on Charlie is that while I love this episode and Dominic Monaghan is awesome, I definitely think it was a mistake to cram the entire timeline of Charlie is religious, Charlie's just doing this for the music, Charlie's a drug addict, Liam is now clean, and Charlie is still a drug addict all into one episode i think it would have played better if we just saw charlie as a religious guy and built that part of the story up and maybe just left the last flashback scene as the one where he's tempted to do the drugs for the first time they could have saved the liam gets clean part for a future episode and fleshed out why charlie would be willing to slip so far so quickly with an additional scene in this episode maybe they were afraid that they wouldn't have time for another charlie flashback for a while uh what do you think would it have been better to to break this up and split it. I don't know. I kind of, don't. You kind of feel like I don't know. Like if you've got a good idea, just put the good idea out and have some faith that you'll have more good ideas later. Even if what you actually have is you all everybody's. <laughs> I mean, it's a good arc. I would say, considering that it's all focused around Liam, it'd be a little weird to just have unless you want to make another flashback completely, you know, uh, centered around the Liam Charlie relationship. But I could understand how the other element is. I think in this first season, they really wanted to show everybody how they all got to Australia, why they were all in Australia. And so I could understand why they felt the need, much like in Tabula Rasa, how we showed why Kate was in Australia and how she got caught and why she ended up getting brought back, how they wanted to sort of play that hand as well with Charlie, just to really get everyone up to speed as to, okay, this is what they were doing. And then in this, in subsequent flashbacks, they're just going to push further back rather than go right up to the opportunity where they get onto that plane. Okay, other number nine. What the hell with John Locke? We got to talk about John Locke knocking out Saeed because uh, it makes no sense. And people are very, very frustrated about this, as am I. Jordan from Wisconsin says, the timeline for Locke to be the one to knock out Saeed, it does not add up. Locke is preparing, then cooking the boar the whole time. It just doesn't seem reasonable that he could sneak off and do it. Plus, how would he know where to go? Yeah, that's another piece of it too, Mike, is that Locke is one of the cave people at this point. He shouldn't have any idea, any whiff of an idea that Saeed is doing what he is doing right now. The only explanation for this, Mike, is that it's just a, it's just a creative misfire. Sometimes that happens. There's really no good way to retcon this into Locke is some sort of super genius and he knew exactly what to do and go and knock out Saeed. This is one of the plot points from season one that I think holds up the worst. Here's a theory, and this one has holes in it, more holes than a mothy cocoon, but hear me out on this. What if the smoke monster, in some sort of form, guided Locke to where Saeed was? And maybe, you know, this was the monster's plan to be like, they're trying to get off the island. I, you know, I know he wants to get them off the island. Sometimes he wants to keep them on the island to torture them and, you know, drive them further apart. But maybe the monster, in some sort of way, shape, or form, was able to lead Locke there. And so when Locke, you know 
granted he still is not completely in the right to be able to do this to be like we have to stay on the island so i'm gonna knock this guy out and break the transceiver but i i think that it could be a way if you're answering the question of how did he find saeed having some sort of you know supernatural navigator on the island might have helped with that yeah i think that this is good so i think that we're missing uh, a flashback a john Locke flashback maybe instead of the pot farmer uh john Locke episode that we get in season three very triggering for me, obviously. Uh, if What if instead of that, we had gotten a flashback episode with Locke where we flash back to the time that he was, uh, he was skinning the boar and preparing it to be cooked. And then from out of the jungle, a chef emerges. Chef Jeff shows up, says, hey, John Locke, you actually have to go off to this very specific point on the island. Saeed's trying to radio for help. He's going to take you out of this island. Uh, some guy told me to tell you that I'm actually just going to cook the the boar. I'm going to prep the boar for you while you go off. And obviously, that's the smoke monster. The smoke monster has taken on the form of the dead chef Jeff, uh, Dharma chef Jeff, uh, and and Locke is now going to have somebody who can actually clean up the pig while Locke goes and knocks out <laughs> Saeed. What do you think? I'll do, yeah, I'll take over, buddy. Here, let's tag out. You wash yourself and uh, go take care of this thing. All right, I'm no longer angry about Locke knocking out Saeed. Now makes Thank you, headcanon. It makes sense. All right, other number 10, let's talk about Locke with Charlie. Uh, Eric Divestein writes in, Locke didn't seem too concerned when Charlie told him about the danger that Jack was in. Is he just trusting that the island will ensure that everything works out for the best, or is he just that cold? But was Locke's lack of concern any worse than that of the background gawkers, only two of whom actually showed up to help save the life of their only doctor? Full marks to Scott and Steve, of course. Uh, well, first well, of all... to be fair, yeah, too many cooks spoil the broth. Uh, that's why you need to tag out and have your ghost chefs show up. I can understand why. And also, Michael wasn't necessarily like in a huge crowd of people like a Jack or a Saeed. He Mm. just sort of gathered a good handful of people. Yeah, and also it's not like Locke's just gawking. He's hunted the boar. He's butchering the boar before he hands it off to Chef Jeff, of course. Uh, But he's he's not gawking. He's going to feed everybody. Well, also, I think it's just uh, maybe it's less that and more so the fact that he it's less so that he it's inactivity. It's more so attitude to the fact that, as Eric is saying, when Charlie approaches him, he's like, Oh, that's interesting. And then does nothing about it. Maybe it's because Locke felt his skills were better applied here. I like to believe if it's this idea of him being an asshole versus him having faith things will work out for the best. I'd like to hope it's the latter, especially considering if he does have faith in Jack as a leader. At this point, he feels like the the island is not done with him yet, and the island has a use for him, so he will not have killed him in that caved in. Um, all right, and Daniel Brennan had also written in and asked, how would you assess Locke's three-request method, especially knowing what he will do to Boone in a few episodes to make him reconsider his relationship with Shannon? His strategy with Charlie is quite tame, and I'm always surprised that it worked. Um, yeah, I think in the in the end, Locke's three-request method, it seemed like it was pretty good. Yeah, well, I think that maybe it could have been a thing where this goes to his head of like, hey... I was able to get Charlie to kick his habit. Good, because I have some big ideas for what I do with future people. And so I think poor, uh, you know, poor Michael and Shannon are just going to really have a, a and Boone are just going to have a hell of a time. And it comes back around to Charlie again in the second season. Yeah. All right. Other number 11. Uh, Mar Barboa writes in and says, are we really staying in the caves, guys? I know Michael gave the OK, but really? He's in construction. He's not a geologist. 
I know there's never another cave-in, but at this moment in time, Jack was just buried. Jack almost died. But Michael says it's fine, so I guess it's safe. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I'm all for Michael getting a, you know, getting the the hero, even though Charlie is the one who sort of gets uh, three cheers, hip hip hooray for he's a jolly good fellow. But yeah, I think one cave-in is one too many cave-ins. I don't know. It's pretty uh, pretty messed up situation, but they need the water. You know, what's a little cave-in between friends? And this one actually worked out okay, right? Yeah, you know? yeah, but it very much could not have, though I guess it'd just be those poor gawkers that end up getting buried under rubble. Yeah, and who, you know, as long as it's not the doctor and it's the gawkers, I don't think that we're going to... Yeah, maybe just Jack has an anti-cave policy if he has to stay with, you know, like at least 10 feet away from the cave at all times. Let's talk about Jack. Daniel Brennan writes in, other number 12, I was pleasantly surprised by how well Jack handled everything in this episode. He did not freak out when Charlie spilled all of the medicine on the floor. He remained calm when it seemed likely he would die. Good job, Jack. You've got what it takes. Yeah, this is an A-plus outing from Jack, ultimately. Even getting trapped in the cave-in, and I do a lot of uh, victim-blaming in the LVP section. I don't think that I can... He didn't die, so, you know... Yeah, that's all I'm discounting him. He was super good with Charlie. Yeah, it's great. I think that... Yeah, and I think especially from his his sort of handling of things last episode, things are still kind of awkward with Kate, but I think it just shows that any sort of non-romantic relationships, he, he does a fantastic job of managing. He has great bedside manner from that perspective, just... I guess when it comes to getting in bed, he doesn't have great perspective. All right. Other number 13 coming your way from Ben Martell, who writes in, we see Charlie and Liam's final words to each other, where Liam offers to have him stay the night. It's sad thinking about it from Liam's perspective. It could be a hard thing for him to live with that. He let Charlie walk away on that note at that moment. Jack mentioned in his press conference, and there's no place like home that Charlie had drowned not long before they managed to get off the Island. It makes me wish that there had been a scene where Jack tells Liam that Charlie had kicked the drugs and been partly responsible for getting them off the island. On the other hand, it seems Liam was making some great money off a greatest hits album, so maybe I shouldn't feel too sorry about him. (laughs) Um, Good good point on that last one. Would you have liked to have seen a uh, a Jack and Liam scene? Would that have uh, would that have been something that would have interested you? There's that's something I never thought about before. That if if Jack had gone to Liam and. I guess even though I don't like Liam, even when he goes clean, he might have some unresolved guilt about what Charlie said to him. The very last thing he said to him about basically you put me in this position. I think Jack could could sort of, you know, put him at ease by saying that, well, Charlie was able to eventually kick the the drugs with or without your help. So it makes him feel a little better that he didn't necessarily drive his brother completely down the bad path. But like you said, at the same time, he is uh, earning a pretty penny on Charlie's debt, though maybe he'd be able to, I don't know, build like a a rehab center or donate to a rehab center in the area dedicated to Charlie or something. He's got all that sweet cash now. So yeah, all that sweater vest money. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, All right. Other number 14, some shout outs. First of all, of course, Jim Fells, the soundtrack analysis, as always, you should be listening to for this episode, another great edition of that video series. We will link to it in our show notes. You know what else we're going to link to? There is now a wiki page for lost down the hatch how about that amber made it for us it's on the rhap wiki there is a down the hatch section uh it's great it it talks about how this is a podcast by the numbers it lays out all the structure of the podcast there's a running tally of the 23 points sections and who's getting mvp and lvp points broken down uh broken down by episode broken down by who issued these points 
Uh, there's the the ongoing chart of, of uh, who stands where. The 4.2 stars section is getting chronicled as well. Even the frozen donkey wheel is being tracked, including the evolution of the rule change of the frozen donkey wheel. It's a really, really great thing. Uh, you should check it out. We are going to yeah. link to it in our show notes, and we are so grateful to Amber for pulling it together. Absolutely. You, are, you get all the MVP points from my perspective, and I'm assuming... As we get further and further down the rabbit hole and down the hatch, as it were, this is just going to become even further built out. So thank you so much, Amber. And also, people, do not make this like Manchester, okay? Do not cover this in graffiti. Let's keep this nice and (laughs) sanctified. Yeah, Down Servo also has updated the dude count. There's six dudes in this episode. We are up to 19. Okay. Okay, pretty good number over seven episodes. Yeah. We've been getting amazing feedback, honestly, Mike. There's like literally too much feedback for us to be able to talk about everything. Um, there's, it's just impossible to really get to it all without like going for like eight hours on this podcast. I know we get close to it very often, uh, but I mean, we've had a full gamut of stuff. We've had lost origin stories. We've got people who are longtime listeners, first time writers into you know the RHAP and Post Show Recaps Network. Uh, down the hatch is getting you guys out of the woodwork. We love that. Um, we've got people who've named their children after characters on Lost talking to us. People who've named their kids Penny and Desmond and Charlie. Uh, a few people who never got through Lost for the first time and now have been inspired to finally go back and finish it. So it's great. We love hearing from all of you. Please. Keep writing in. Send those questions in. Keep sending us that feedback down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. It's it's really, really wonderful. It means the world. It really does warm my heart each and every day to watch how much the show and surprisingly this podcast has really, uh, you know, reawakened people's love in the show, really had them emotionally connected to not only our stories, but the stories that are being talked about on screen. And I cannot wait to have that keep going in perpetuity. Josh, we have an awesome group of listeners. We're not telling that we're not saying that anyone is wearing stupid clothes, unlike what Drive Chef no. would do. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Although we can't see you, so we don't really know. But I assume, I assume you're all dressed fine. Uh, one last other before we get into the 23 point section. Uh, Mike, September 22nd, 2004 was the 15 year anniversary of the series premiere of Lost. Uh, Stefan Johnson had written into us and said, I'm going to be on a plane on the 22nd. Is it weird that I'm hoping for a lost type situation? Oh my God, Stephane, yes. <laughs> I, ho- I hope that you can hear us still because yes, that is strange and I hope it did not come true for you. I hope uh, uh, maybe it's a lost situation that you meet some quirky characters along the way that will uh, make you bonded for life, but not in the way of massive casualties, plane crash on an island type of side of the lost situation. Mike, did you do anything special for the anniversary? Uh, for Lost's quinceanera, uh, I watched <laughs> I watched The Moth. I was able yeah. to take in some Lost uh, in preparation for this podcast and just, I guess, ruminate on the fact that I get to freaking do this, which is so awesome each and every day. So I was able to take in some Lost on Lost Day. What about yourself? Uh, well, I have those episode rankings that are up on The Hollywood Reporter. We will link to them in the show notes uh i'm in los angeles right now as los we are angeles this, as you, i'm in los angeles i'm in los angeles as i'm recording this uh maybe not here anymore i would assume as you are listening to this or at least i'm on my way back home uh so hopefully no lost type situations on my plane ride back to new york because there's no islands for me to, <laughs> to crash upon anyway maybe long it island probably, it would probably just be death uh so hopefully i make it um but no on on september 22nd 2004 
uh, or to 20, uh, 2019, rather, 15 years later, uh, I, I'm out here for work. Uh, and I got to go to uh, my very first Emmy party because uh, it was the Emmy Awards on September 22nd, 2019. And uh, let's just say I, I got to I got to say happy anniversary to uh, to somebody who who would have really uh, who is very responsible for the reason that we are even talking about Lost. Uh, to oh, this day. my God. Lloyd uh, Braun. I got to meet Lloyd Brown. <laughs> it was it was a very big deal. Uh, so yeah, uh, I will. I will, to to get into it any further. I I was very weak at the knees uh, getting to meet uh, one of the the key masterminds behind Lost, who is uh, somebody who I will be speaking to again soon in a professional, not Lost capacity in the very near future, with some story coverage coming your way to the Hollywood Reporter in the not too distant future. Uh, a true hero of mine uh, who could not have been a nicer human being. And I guess on that note, I should say that Damon Lindelof, uh, creator of Lost, who may or may not be the person who I'm talking about, uh, had an incredible Instagram post uh, on the anniversary. Yes. I don't know if you if you caught. Uh, yes. if, you did not, if you did not catch it, it's worth re- relitigating here because it's especially great for the down the hatch crowd. <laughs> Absolutely. I wonder yeah. if he was ever able to listen how what his reaction to our one of our many running jokes would be in response yes. to the thing that he has kept memorialized after all these years. Yes. So uh, Damon Lindelof, who is not on Twitter anymore, but is on Instagram and is phenomenal on Instagram, uh, a must follow if you are on Instagram, uh, wrote September 22nd, 2004, Jack makes a plane out of a banana leaf. Fifteen years later, that very same leaf is framed on my wall, brown with age, but miraculously still intact. There are no words for how much this show impacted my life. Suffice to say, it made me, and then it broke me, and then it made me all over again. Lost was created with love, and by a family in front of and behind the camera. This spirit of Ohana inspired the whole idea of live together, die alone. Together. That's the word I think of most when it comes to Lost. Not just among those of us who made it, but with those of you who watched it, who committed to it and loved it, who were frustrated and perplexed and inspired and impassioned by it. We weren't dead the whole time. We were alive the whole time. Together. Happy 15th. Amazing. Amazing. And also, they were not dead the whole time, people. Come on, stop. A lot of people who uh, had their own cool, clever ways of uh, and creative ways of celebrating the 15-year milestone of Lost. The Rap published a fun piece, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes, that chronicles like 15 different awkward fan encounters yeah. uh, from, from over the years from the Lost actors. There's some really, really great stories in there. Uh, but I, I want to read the one from Terry O'Quinn. Because this is just amazing to think about. This is like a Bill Murray story. Uh, This is what Terry O'Quinn said happened to him. I was in Ireland once. We were on a publicity trip for Lost. And I was in Galloway walking home from the pub underneath this bridge. And there were a bunch of young guys, maybe five or six guys, who were like teenagers under the bridge, drinking something from a bottle. Some kind of poison, is what Terry O'Quinn says, which is such an incredible thing to say. He continues, I walked by and one of them goes, that's John Locke. That's John Locke. What the F are you doing here? And then they insisted that I drink, and of course I did. But I thought, how amazing. Here I am in Ireland. These guys are teenagers, nothing like me. They're totally down with Lost. And I think that was one of those moments where I said, whoa, this is a pretty big deal. They were very sweet. 
there were all these F-bombs all over. F and John Locke. Oh, you got to try this. Great story from Terry O'Quinn about the time that he just drank under a bridge with a bunch of Irish kids. Oh, and I'm assuming that <laughs> that, that line also uh, is probably something that Charlie wished he would say to Locke if he ever got his drugs back. Yeah. Uh, and as Mike has mentioned, there's a new podcast that's launched through The Looking Glass. It's by Sci-Fi Wire. It's co-hosted by Tara Bennett and Maureen Ryan, uh, both great people in the Lost community. I think it's going to be a six-part limited series. Mm-hmm. Much shorter in the runtime than what Mike and I are yeah, doing, so I'd much more manageable you could, listen. You could fit, fit like four, I'd say, uh, through The Looking Glass into one episode of Down the Hatch, but they're they're looking much more in the macro. Like The one that just came out this past week was with uh, Millie McFarland, who's a TV critic for Salon.com just basically talking about how the tv world was affected by loss in terms of uh you know planning out stories interactions between creators and community it's a really interesting listen at about 40 minutes and there's gonna be plenty of those to take in over the course of the next month and a half all right let's get into 23 23 points uh this is where we are awarding mvp points and lvp points to the uh the characters of Lost based on the moth this week. Mike is going to be giving out two MVP points. I will have three. I will have two LVP points, and Mike will be giving out three. And the current tally... Oh, well, okay, can we, can we, we, Let's just do like bottom three, top three, because there's a big list of things. All right. Top three is Locke is leading the charge. Kate is right behind him. Uh, Locke is winning at five. Kate has four. Jack has three. At the bottom, Sawyer minus three. Randy Nations minus three. And Boone Minus three. Let's get into it. Um, okay. Uh, so I've got the first MVP points award. Got to award it to Charlie, right? Yeah, I think so. I think that this is a good episode for Charlie, and he's the hero of the day. I think, and I think this might be our first point to Charlie. Uh, I believe it is. I believe Charlie is now officially on the board. Nice. Um, so yeah, so Charlie will get my first point. I think the reasons are obvious. I'm going to give a point. You know, the bloom taketh away, but the bloom giveth this week. I'm giving a point back to Kate here. Uh, Ooh, okay. Because I feel like her rapid pursuit of Jack when she finds out, you know, amidst all the drama stuff that happened last week, and we can cer- we certainly, you know, talked about that last week, I think when she finds out that Jack's in trouble, she does not hesitate. She runs to that cave, and she keeps digging until her fingernails are bloody and raw, and I think that just shows how she cares, and the fact that, you know, uh, she was a jerk to Sawyer, who was also being a jerk back to her, shows that she she can handle him, Saeed. Don't you worry. So I'm going to give her a point back here. All right. I'm going to give a point to Michael. Yay! Uh, I know that there's some feedback listeners, uh, some feedbackers who had a lot of guff to give to Michael, but I got to give him a point here. Uh, he He was very helpful with the caves. If not for Michael's swift action, who knows what could have happened. Charlie would not have been able to get in at all. So you got to give a point to Michael here. I'm going to give a point. I'm going to go a little bit off the beaten path here. I'm going to give a point to the moth. Because okay. look, uh, All right. it, it's, a, you know, it's a symbol and it helped Charlie in his hour of need. It literally guided him to safety when he and Jack would have died. So, and I think unfortunately, I don't know, maybe we should count like an entire bug category because I don't know if we'll see a moth ever again in the, the history of loss. But I feel like in the episode called the moth, I got to give it to the titular character here. I'm not mad at that. All right, I've got the final MVP point. I'm going to give it to Saeed Jarrah. It's not his fault that John Locke got visited by a dead chef in the jungle and got the idea to knock him out. Saeed's plan was solid. Saeed's plan was going to work. It was working. And then he got knocked out, but he gets a point anyway. Yeah, I think very good plan from our resident professor here. All right, so I have three LVB points to give out. Gotta start with Lamum here, Liam Pace. 
just the absolute worst. Even when he was trying to better himself, he did it at Charlie's detriment. And the fact that he was the one who dragged Charlie into this lifestyle and basically got him down the path of doing drugs that brings him to where we see him today is just despicable purposely so. He gets an LBB point in my book. Okay, I gotta take one away from the boar because it died. So just add it to the the boars who now have uh, minus two on the boars. I know that Sawyer's gonna get uh, a little bit of a reprieve next episode, but I gotta give him one more LVP point for the road here just from withholding that information about Jack and then delivering it when he finally does in a very snarky, assholey way. I gotta say, I don't know where we're gonna net out with Sawyer on confidence, man. I know it's the tradition to like give a point to the centric character, but Sawyer's a real jerk in confidence, man. So I yeah, don't know. Let's see. He's, he's unorthodox in many, many ways. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'm going to take a point away from my favorite character on Lost, John Locke. Mm. Uh, knocking out Saeed was a total dick move. Yeah. Uh, un- uh, unforgivable, to be completely honest with you. So it's a sea change. Kate is uh, with. She's once again on top of the leaderboard with five, and John Locke is now at four. Uh, listen, these things just don't ha- happen out of nowhere, despite Kate's beliefs. I'm going to give my final LVP point the rest of Drive Shaft, <laughs> and that includes uh, their stylists for having Charlie walk out there with frosted red tips. The other two members of Drive Shaft who clearly notice that their other two members are having serious drug problems and do absolutely nothing about it. It just seems like these people are completely unspoken for, and maybe they don't necessarily care, or maybe they're just horrible enablers, but I feel like they deserve an LVP point here for not acknowledging the situation that's going on with their band that's very clearly tearing them apart. All right, so uh, get the rest of the list, the full list of where we stand at the 23 points on the Down the Hatch wiki page, which is an awesome thing that we are now able to say. Uh, You can check that out in the show notes. Let's move on to 4.2 stars, our ongoing episode rankings. And just to reset exactly what this is, I'm going to give a score on a scale from 0 to 4.2 of this episode. Mike is going to do that as well. You all, everybody listening to this podcast, will submit your episode scores as well, and we will average the audience score for a third data point on the board. We will average my score, Mike's score, and the audience average to get our final score of the episode. And that is how down the hatch is ranking lost as we go through and i think it is no surprise uh the moth is going to be in last place as it stands uh i'm giving it 3.0 out of 4.2 i still think it's a it's a it's lost so it's great and i and i love it and there's so much to enjoy about it but just to rein myself in after giving out some very liberal 4.2s i feel like i got to balance the scales a little bit i'm going to knock it down to three i i can't put it in the twos I think there's enough good stuff that it deserves to be in the three range, but probably not much further than an actual just 3.0. So here's my question, Josh, before I reveal my score. Are you considering, because the scale from 0 to 4.2, in your opinion, is 2.4 an average episode of Lost in terms of scores? Mm. Um, I guess I haven't thought about it that hard yet. Uh, yeah, because cause I took it that way, which is why I'm prefacing it to say this gets a 2.8, in my okay. opinion, in that... Is it an above, above average? average? Is it an above average episode of Lost? Yes. Is it that much above average? Yeah, maybe not necessarily. You know, I feel like maybe it's because it's lacking that big mystery element that I liked about a lot of other uh, things going on. There isn't a lot of like big character stuff that's going on on the island outside of Charlie that even an episode like House of the Rising Sun might have. And as great of a performer as Dominic Monaghan is, the writing's a little hacky. 
especially compared to the episodes that yeah. came before. I think it's beautifully acted, but I think the theming around it is just a little heavy-handed, especially in comparison to the other episodes. But it's interesting, you know, if we're looking at the audience scores, and I realize we haven't given the uh, the audience average ratings yet, so I'll just go down the line with that. Uh, so the pilot was a 4.1. Tabula Rasa was a 3.3. Uh, Walkabout was also a 4.1. White Rabbit was a 3.7. House of the Rising Sun was a 3.4. The Moth actually had one of our was our highest variance episode, I think, but it ended up being a 3.2. That all averages out to be a 3.02, which puts it in last place below Tabula Rasa at 3.40. Above that, House of the Rising Sun at 3.6. Above that, White Rabbit 3.97. And then really neck and neck at the top is the pilot at 4.12 and walkabout at 4.16. Now these are always up for changing, depending on, you know, when you send these rankings to us. And if you have ones from all the way back in the pilot. Just feel free to send these our way. These are ever-shifting, ever-changing. 100%. So please keep sending your ratings in as we are trying to get the official star rating system here for Down the Hatch. Flexible document uh, through Season 1 for all of these Season 1 episodes before we lock all of that in. Uh, all right, that brings us to the end of the episode. And because of the rule change, we are in no risk of spinning a wheel. We are Woo! well past 108 minutes at this point. Uh, there's no Lindelof to spin, uh, to, to, to ambush you with. There are not a lot of Lindelofs in our Lindel inbox right now. We would like them, so create them. We have designed a Wombat Station yes, logo. You want hat. that hat. Hats are ready to be made. They're up for the taking. We just don't have the content to produce a show yet. So that's on you. So get to music making, folks. Send those sweet, sweet tunes, drive shaft style, into the Down the Hatch inbox, Down the Hatch at postshowrecaps.com, which is all, of course, the best way to send any of your feedback, your comments, your questions for the 1516 other sections. You can also tweet at us at postshowrecaps is our main Twitter account. I'm at Round Howard. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. So subscribe to Down the Hatch if you have not done so already on your podcast app of choice. Your ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated. The next episode of this podcast, we're going to be talking confidence, man. That podcast is going to drop in your feeds October 4th, 10-4, little buddy. Get your feedback into us by the morning of 10-2, October 2nd. We are going to be recording that day. So you have until that morning to get us your feedback for confidence, man. Of course, if your feedback comes in beyond that point, we will be able to get to it in a future episode of Down the Hatch. So do not fret. Uh, Mr. Bloom, anything else? All I will say is I'll drop this little nugget for next time on Down the Hatch. Because I came to Lost Late, Confidence Man was my walkabout. Wow. Oh, my God. Amazing. We'll touch upon that next week. It it, it can be taken very uh, liberally or very conservatively, depending on that statement. Okay, cool. That's exciting. I can't wait to talk about that. (laughs) That's going to be good. All right. That's going to do it for us here on Down the Hatch. This week, look at that under three hours. <laughs> Just Charlie, should we keep but... singing peanut butter over and over again? <laughs> no, no, no. But we should let that play us out here on the podcast. So thank you so much, everybody, and take care. First you take the peanuts and you crunch them. You crunch them. First you take the peanuts and you crunch them. You crunch them for your peanut, peanut butter, and jelly. Peanut, peanut butter, and jelly. Podcast failure. 